So, Nick. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it and for indulging my bug story. <laughs> um, so, for those who don't know, Nick, who are you? Oh, uh, well, just some idiot you found on the side of the road. <laughs> no, um, online my handle is a Cinder Thief, and we do streaming and YouTube videos. And by occupation, I'm a writer, and by profession, I'm a lawyer. And so we get together and talk about things from time to time, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll need to do more lawyer podcasts. People really like that one. Oh yeah, that that one uh, seems to be that one along with the near one seems yeah. to be pretty popular among the ones that we've done together so far. Yeah, maybe we'll do the law of near. Now that would be a hoot and a half because <laughs> all the stuff that goes on. <laughs> yeah, and and today we're actually talking about a game that I tried for the first time um, a few days ago, which is Devil May Cry. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, you played, I think you streamed Devil May Cry 5, and that was the first time you'd ever played anything in the series, right? Yeah. It was it was really cool. Yeah. All those games are so much fun. Like, <laughs> the one we're going to talk about today, number three, is yeah, in terms of narrative chronology, the first, because it's like Drakengard. It's, you know, number three is the prequel to number one in Drakengard. It's the same thing here. Um, Wait. What's up? Does this confirm a shared universe? I think it does, without question. Actually, I'm pretty sure that Bayonetta and Devil May Cry do take place in the same universe. Oh, pretty sure. I assumed they were like related. Yeah, I guess. Although I think it was the same director or some such who was behind both. But I'm in my research last night. I came across information that, uh, if it's reliable, that those two series do take place in the same universe. And Bayonetta may have actually met Dante, our intrepid protagonist, at one point in time. So that's pretty cool. Breaking news. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Revealed. <laughs> yep. You heard it here first, folks. And I, I saw it on some website I can't remember, but you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and so it's it's like number three is it's probably the the best of the first three games. It's it's kind of a turning point in the series and in the whole genre of character action games. Oh yeah, how come? Um uh, Oh it's well because like uh the first game was is a classic and is highly regarded, but the second game is not highly regarded. <laughs> now, one, one problem with the first two games is, is a really weak narrative. I think they, they gave us just enough story to kind of contextualize while we're you know running through all these corridors and hacking up demons and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the to answer the criticisms of weak narrative for both games, and to answer the pretty much global criticisms of the second game, which was not at all well received. <laughs> um, they built uh, Devil May Cry 3 with a renewed focus on sort of developing the characters, on developing a somewhat tighter narrative. Although it's it's suitably campy for a character action game, but it's a much stronger narrative than the first two games have. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, it's a renewed focus on the difficulty and intricacy of the combat mechanics. It's a lot harder than the first two games, and by consequence, I think it's a lot better. Of course, I'm a Souls player, so I would say that. <laughs> but... <laughs> So it's just so that's why the so those things sort of coalesce to make Devil May Cry three sort of one of the best loved character action games ever. Sorry, I got a phone call and it somehow registered on my computer. <gasps> Is this Dante calling? It must be. He's like, dude, you better get it right. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's 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 really a turning point for the series, and the series wouldn't be what it is without Devil May Cry three. It, it's sort of the defining game. 
for pe- how people perceive Dante, for how people perceive the series and the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's extremely well received, extremely well done. Uh, and the HD re- remaster is even better. So. Oh yeah, there's an HD remaster. Yeah, it originally came out for the PlayStation Two, mm-hmm. and then they did an then they did the Devil May Cry HD collection for PS3 and then PS4, and with you know more fluid movement and better graphics and that stuff. Um, and of course, that's the one I played, and it was, it was it was a delightful experience, and I'd highly recommend it. Okay. So yeah, yeah there, there goes my rant about video game history. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and um, so Devil May Cry Three. Yes. I've never played it. I've only played like half of Devil May Cry Five, basically, and that's my experience with the uh, DMC series. Mm-hmm. Also, I took special care not to do any research. Because I had no time this week. <laughs> I, I took extra special care not to prepare for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, so <laughs> you mentioned that if we're doing it chronologically, we should talk about DMT3 first. Yep. Now, yeah, no, that's right, because it, it's a prequel. It, it, it introduces us to a, a young and cocky and sort of flamboyant Dante who he wears his trademark red leather jacket, but no, no shirt underneath it. You just see like a leather strap across his nipples that's presumably there to hold up the swords or whatever. Okay, but, let, me, let me Google him. Yeah, so you, you, if you Google Devil May Cry 3 Dante, he's got a oh, perfect body. I see, I see this strap. Yeah. Okay, you know what this reminds me of? What's that? Okay, you probably don't know Alaska. She's a contestant from uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm-hmm. And she is, uh, I'll show you. They had a con- they had like a um, contest, I mean, um, a challenge on the show at some point to create your own like commercial of something. And she <laughs> she created a commercial of a tape and I'll post a picture. Oh. Oh my goodness. It was just like chest tape. <laughs> That's what that was making me think of. Yeah, it looks like he's wearing chest tape over his nipples. <laughs> he's using Alaska tape. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's pretty much what he's doing. It's like he's got this red leather jacket, no shirt underneath it, and it's like chest tape across his nipples. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so let's start in the beginning. Devil May Cry 3. Tell me about I, it. Well, What's going on there? <laughs> Well, to to get the full context, we have to go back roughly two thousand years ago. Whoa! Uh, you see, there there are two sort of planes of existence we have to concern ourselves with in Devil May Cry. Uh, one is, you know, or basically. Could you, could you say that again? The audio made like this weird and human noise as you said, "Devil May Cry." <laughs> it's like yeah. it's 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 the, it's the demons coming to make sure we do the podcast oh right. Oh my there. god, that was so spoofy. Actually, never mind. I'll leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically, yeah. There, there are two planes of existence we have to concern ourselves with: the the physical plane, Earth. You mm-hmm. know, called Midgard. If you're watching Thor, you know the plane we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think the game calls the human world, and then you've got the demon world, basically hell, where all the demons live. Okay. And um, Satan in the series is basically a p- powerful demon called Mundus, who's sort of the demon overlord of hell. You know, mm-hmm. basically the, the equivalent of Satan, pretty much. Okay. Um, Two thousand years ago, there was war between the human world and the demon world, or the underworld, or hell, whatever you want to call it. Um. 
of course, ruled over by Mundus, and the, the demons sort of oppressed the humans, and there was nothing really the humans could do to stand against the demons, because the demons are superior to us in pretty much every way imaginable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but one demon, no, there was one demon named Sparta, who was probably the strongest demon to ever exist, stronger even than Mundus. But he was uh, Mundus's sort of right-hand general. Well, he decided to turn against his own kind and fight against the demons and liberate the humans from their oppression. Why did he decide to do that? It's really not made clear. Um, I guess he, eventually he does fall in love with the human woman and give birth to our two sort of main characters. Oh. Um, but that happens in the 20th century. Okay. And this was 2,000 years ago. So it, it's a bit murky as to precisely why he decided to turn against his own kind the way he did. And the the general's name is Sparta? S-P-A-R-D-A, Sparta. Oh, Sparta, okay. Because I was about to be like, does it mean Dante's, like, half Greek? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. It's, um, well, the the name would suggest Italian, I suppose, but, (laughs) you know, it's, um, it's, it's, shoot, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, it's kind of, like, murky Mm as to why Sparta decides to do. The the most the games say about it is that he developed a sense of justice and therefore turned against the demons. Okay. Uh, but if you're, de- but from the point of view of a demon, that's not justice; that's treason. So I don't know. So um, let me ask you real quick: the demon mm-hmm. society in hell, what was it like? It was a. Uh, it seems very sophisticated. Of course, it had a structure with Mundus at the top, mm-hmm. and then it had a hierarchy of generals and sort of, you know, those are basically your boss fights—the sort of top tier general type demons. Mm-hmm. And then you've got sort of elite regular enemies, which are the Somewhat less sophisticated, but still pretty sophisticated demons. Then you've got your sort of mindless automaton demons that run around and just serve as fodder for your sword. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just in terms of the gameplay mechanics. So there's a there's a clear hierarchy. There's a clear society and structure, and they seem proud of who they are and the society that they've built. And they seemed equally proud of lording over the humans until Sparta put an end to that. Mm-hmm. Um, Sparta was the the key characteristic of Sparta for our purposes is that he's godly powerful just extraordinarily powerful and seeking to become the successor to his power is a lot of what drives multiple characters in the series okay um so yeah sparta does a lot of stuff uh that's very important to what we're doing um but in summary he you know turns against his own kind basically single-handedly drives them back and you know liberates the humans from them uh-huh. and seals them away in hell so they so that they can't really get to us, at least not in great numbers. So does he seal them away in hell, which is like their place where they live? Right, yeah. Also known as the demon world or the underworld. You can you can say hell for short. Because um, damned souls do go there as well. So that, that is where damned souls go. So it is actually hell. Okay, okay um, I see. Yeah, so it's actually serving as a place of eternal punishment as well as the habitat of the demons. Um, yes, for, yeah, for whatever reason, Sparta developed a sense of justice, fell in love with the human race, rose up against his fellow demons, fought alongside the humans, defeated Mundus, and sealed Mundus away in a marble vault somehow. Oh. Um, and that's where we see him in Devil May Cry 1, but that's jumping way ahead. <laughs> uh, at this point, he became a legend and secretly ruled over the humans to preserve the peace until his death sometime in the 20th century. Uh, I'm not sure why he, not 100% sure why he died. Uh, but I found some things that hint at the notion that he eventually sort of became human. Mm. No, I know what really happened. He was so heartbroken that the USSR collapsed. 
Oh, <laughs> He's yeah. like, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, rebuild that wall. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying why that he, he became human? <laughs> I don't know, but that was the most delightful uh, diversion. <laughs> Rebuild that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. <laughs> I think Gorbachev actually lives in California now. Oh my god, he's still alive? He, he, he's either alive or died only very recently, and he's lived, he lived in California for, or ha- has lived in California for quite some time, if I understand correctly. But yeah. Oh my god, okay, I just Wikipedia'd him. Seems like he's still alive. Oh, I'm Yeah, kidding. yeah. It pops up every now and again. Yeah, he was born uh, March 2nd, 1931. Yep, still kicking. For those who don't know, he's actually related to Harry Potter. Oh, really? Yeah, because of the mark on his forehead. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I see. Hey, Harry Potter's not the only one, you know, who had the, the spell of protection <laughs> yeah. from Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, Gorbachev protecting us from Voldemort. Yep. <laughs> Gorbachev's like, you think Harry Potter's impressive? I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but before Sparta dies, he falls in love with a human woman named Eva, and through her, fathers two sons named Dante and Virgil. OMD. And he may have, he may, I, I sort of speculate that he may have become human in order to copulate with her, and that's oh. what leads to his eventual death. I um, see. Because, uh, yeah, because he ru- sort of secretly rules over the human race for a long time. Mm-hmm. Until his death, and I think it's he. I think he decided it's sort of like that movie with Nicolas Cage, where the angel becomes mortal. Oh yeah, to, with uh, Mac Ryan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget the name of it. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but I think it's probably best known for the that one song that the Goo Goo Dolls made for the soundtrack. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I couldn't remember you know? the name, but the song started playing in my head. Yeah, the song was hugely popular. And I think that's probably what the movie's best known for yeah. now. Um, and of course, Nick Cage's career has taken an unfortunate decline. <laughs> what do you mean? It's as uh, it's as great as ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what am I talking about? <laughs> Have you seen Ghost Rider? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, see, Ghost Rider was sort of at like the, the tipping point just before the decline. <laughs> yeah. So they had two boys. That's right, Dante and Virgil. Dante's our protagonist for most of the series, and Virgil is sort of the polar opposite of Dante. Oh, how uh, so? Well, they look identical, uh, but their personalities are very different. Dante is really not at all ambitious, and he only grudgingly embraces... Of course, they're both half-human, half-demon. Mm-hmm. Um, Dante only grudgingly embraces his demon side and sort of much prefers to live and present himself as a human, prefers to, prefers to interact with humans, doesn't want anything much to do with his the powerful legacy that you know underlies his, his background, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very, and especially in Devil May Cry 3, he's very flippant, very sort of carefree and flamboyant and irreverent and, you know, reckless and arrogant. You know, cocky young action hero. Whereas Virgil is very self-possessed, very cool, calm, and calculated, and is keen to embrace his demon side and seek more power. Virgil's very powerful, but he's seeking more power. Mm-hmm. And that sort of drives the events in Devil May Cry 3. Uh, they're they're polar opposites. I, th- I think it's a fairly common trope in Japanese storytelling. You know the the polar opposite brothers who are constantly sort of in conflict mm-hmm. with each other. Yeah. Uh, f- for instance, that's one of the big driving forces behind the lore in Naruto. Um, 
like the whole Naruto and Sasuke are reincarnations of, you know, brothers who existed around the beginning and they've been manifesting themselves in different forms and fighting ever since, you know, almost the beginning of time, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's just sort of a common thing in Japanese storytelling, sort of the, the two brothers eternally at war. And that's what the conflict between Dante and Virgil really sort of defines the series and accounts for a lot of the events that take place. Mm-hmm. And also the most difficult dang boss battles. Virgil is consistently the hardest boss. Oh, yeah? <laughs> just, just, as as uh, What's-His-Face says in Dark Souls 3, gives me conniptions. <laughs> yeah, awkward Hawkwood. <laughs> that, uh, that crestfallen arse Harkwood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gives me conniptions, man. Virgil is consistently the hardest boss in any of the games where you encounter him. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's meant to be that way because, you know, he's always... He, in terms of the lore, he's supposed to be Dante's perpetual opponent, strongest opponent. And so that, that's reflected in the gameplay. Vir- you have to be good to beat Virgil. I mean, you got to really be on top of your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, sort of, that theme is sort of borne out through most of this series. Virgil doesn't appear in Devil May Cry 2, but he appears in all the other games, and, and he is uh, consistently your toughest opponent, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but we've actually skipped ahead a bit. A lot of stuff happened in the 2,000 years. You know, between the initial when Sparta initially sealed away Mundus, and when he sort of sired Dante and Virgil. Oh yeah, like what? Yeah, shortly after defeating Mundus, Sparta turned his attention to this tower called the the Timony Grew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this was a tower built by demon worshippers to serve as sort of a connector between Earth and Hell, between the human world and the demonic underworld. Um, and if and if left alone. Uh, the devil worshippers would sort of use that tower to essentially bring hell to earth and, you know, it, it would undo everything Sparta had done to get rid of the demons. So Sparta undertook a very elaborate process to set up at least two different seals on this tower and basically seal away the demons and all their power in the demonic underworld so that they could not return. Because he'd, he'd already sealed away Mundus right. in this mausoleum, but that didn't take care of all the other demons, right? So now Sparta's going to seal away all the other demons. Mm-hmm. And he undertook like an elaborate, basically two-step ritual to do this, to place two seals on the tower and seal it away underground. Um, the first step was to... You see, there were these, there were these seven powerful demons um, who were once angels but fell into sin and were cast down to earth. Mm-hmm. You know, f- familiar refrain, yeah. fallen angels. Yeah. <laughs> and f- for... For our purposes, we'll call them the Angels of the Seven Deadly Sins, because each one actually represented and was named after one of the seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. Um, They were very powerful, but nobody was even close to being a match for Sparta. So what Sparta does is he strips them. (laughs) First thing, he strips all these demons of their names and therefore their power, because I guess their power is in their names. Mm -hmm. And he set them as a seal against the tower by sort of nailing them to the earth with these cursed stakes. Like the, the special metal stakes that are sort of cursed with demonic power, he strips them of their name, strips them, strips them of their power, and nails them to the earth with these stakes, so that they're the first seal against the tower to kind of keep it underground and inaccessible, right? Um, and Virgil encounters a couple of these spirits in the mangas that we're going to discuss, and eventually winds up freeing them all. But we're skipping ahead. <laughs> um, and so the second step was this elaborate ritual that finally and fully sort of seals away. The demons in the underworld. He, he goes to this place called the Layer of Judgment. It's a place deep inside the tower called Timony Grew. And uh, he uses several ingredients to sort of perfect the ritual and finalize the seal. The first is his own blood. 
Um, the second is the blood of a pure priestess whom he sacrifices down there. I mean, at best I can tell, he just literally kills her and sacrifices her for her blood. To, and he, and the third is a is something called the perfect amulet. In the perfect amulet is something that recurs throughout the series. It's this amulet with a red jewel inlaid in sort of precious metal. It's fairly big, and it's capable of being split in two. And so it, it, it contains a lot of supernatural power. And so Sparta uses this amulet to finalize the seal, and then he breaks the amulet in half and gives one half to each of his sons with the son's, the recipient's name sort of engraved on the back as kind of a personal gift. Um, and as you might imagine, the amulet is also one of the keys to unlocking the seal. And so I guess he figured if he was going to leave the power to undo his seal with anyone, it was would be with his sons, you know. He didn't realize what a power mad megalomaniac Virgil would turn into. <laughs> you know, so he gave one half to each of his sons, and uh, the, the amulet performs another function, which we'll get to here in just a second. Because the la- pretty much the last thing he did, Sparta did before fully sealing away the the uh, the demonic underworld. Yeah. Well, actually, no. Take it. He did a couple other things actually that are relevant to the gameplay in Devil May Cry Three. Um, in addition to sort of using the seven the angels of the seven deadly sins as a seal against the tower, he also sealed away sort of seven powerful demons as guardians in the tower who were basically to attack anyone who set foot and started making their way towards the layer of judgment to try to undo his seal. And these are all bosses in the game that we fight uh, as we're making our way through the tower. They are Cerberus, Agni and Rudra, think Ornstein and Smo, uh, Nevin, think Quaylag. Leviathan and Beowulf, monster named Beowulf. Uh, <laughs> drawing upon drawing upon the first epic tale there yeah. in human history, perhaps, Beowulf. Leviathan's interesting because you know when Dishonored, how you're in the void and sometimes you'll see whales sort of swimming through space for no apparent reason? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Leviathan is a giant whale that swims through the air. What? <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> oh my god. And we'll come back to Leviathan because Leviathan plays an interesting role in the game. But just think, just a literal, a giant red-eyed whale swimming through the air. <laughs> you know? It's hardcore. It is pretty hardcore. What about a giant sushi swimming through the air? As far as I know, there aren't any giant sushis, but there are a couple of demons who might kind of look like rotten sushi. <laughs> oh, no. Is that what happens to sushi? You don't put it in the fridge overnight? <laughs> Yeah, it, it coalesces into this pustule, and you have to destroy it. <laughs> there's one. There's one area in the game that's kind of the equivalent of the Valley of Defilement, and you have to destroy these. You have to destroy these pustules, these really gross-looking demonic pustules, and that's what happens to the sushi. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why whenever I get sushi, I always try to make sure to eat it that night because you don't want it to go bad. You know, don't want it to go bad. Of course, in good sushi, should not be left uneaten. It's true. I don't think. No, you're absolutely right. So yeah, so we've got the guardians in the tower, we've got the seven deadly sins sealing this tower, and we've got the final ritual that involved human sacrifice, and and it's part of giving his own blood and the, the, the amulet and all that. And the last thing he did before sealing away the demon world was that he took his own immense power and placed it inside this sword, right? And the sword the sword goes by different names. It has two forms. It has sort of a dormant form and a waking form. Um, we'll, we'll call, we'll refer to the sword generally as the sword of Sparta, but in its dormant form, it's called the force edge. Just, just like it sounds force edge. Mm -hmm. That's when it's dormant. When it's awake, it's called just Sparta. 
named after Sparta, or Demon Sword Sparta. And when it's awake, uh-huh. of course, is when, if you can wield the sword, then you'll have access to the full powers of Sparta, which pretty much makes you the most powerful being alive. Um, and so that's sort of the Maltese Falcon of, you know, Devil May Cry 3. You've got the antagonist seeking to enter the demon world to get this sword so that they can have the full power of Sparta. You know, because both his sons are powerful, but neither one is his equal, so that's why Vir- okay. Virgil wants the sword, you know, so he can be as strong as his father. Um, but again, we're, I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit. So that's sort of the background. You know, you've got Sparta saving the human race from the demons uh, and undertaking this elaborate multi-step process to seal away Timony Gru and therefore seal away the entrance to the demonic realms so that the demons cannot return to Earth and oppress us. And in the process, Sparta sealed away his own power. Uh, which may have been one of the factors leading to his death, because without his demonic power, he might have made it mortal, and hence, you know, he would eventually die of old age. Um, but yeah, so that so that's that's basically the setup. Does it make sense so far? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, actually. Awesome. Cool. So it's not quite as intricate as like Drakengard or Bloodborne, but once you dig into it, it's a surprisingly elaborate background. Mm-hmm. And uh, keep in mind, we're still not at the game. We, we've just gotten to the manga. <laughs> <laughs> there were there were two manga published as sort of direct lead-ins to the game. Um, mm-hmm. There was a third one that they started working on, but it was never released. So I'm kind of hesitant to rely on that one because it was never actually published. So I'm not sure if we can consider it canon or not. Um, you know, so I probably, it, it's not as important, I guess, to our purposes anyway as the first two. Okay. Uh, the first one is called Code One Dante because it kind of. This is kind of the, one of the first, one of the earliest times chronologically that we see Dante as sort of a, not, you know, it, it is in his young, brash form in Devil May Cry 3. Um, <laughs> this, this is shortly after the time which Dante uh, actually runs a business called Devil May Cry, and he's a demon hunter for hire. You mm-hmm. know, he loves hunting demons, and that's what, how, what he, he sells his services as a demon hunter. But at this point, he hasn't decided on a name for his business, but there is this guy called Enzo, who's sort of Dante's you know, Booker or Bookie or his manager, you know, who lines up jobs for him, right? <laughs> and so at the beginning of the manga, Enzo comes by to remind Dante of this outstanding job. Dante grumpily replies that he's not in the mood. Even so, Enzo leaves saying, you know where to find me if you're inclined to finish this job that you agreed to do for money. <laughs> yeah. And so where to find Enzo is a brothel slash strip club full of naked, sweaty, gyrating women. Uh, <laughs> So Dante goes there and finds Enzo, strangely, being attacked by a demon. Which, which even, even though Sparta sealed away the demon world, you know, a few demons you know, still manage to slip through from time to time. But that, that's what keeps back the flood, right? So. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, so are demons a normal occurrence in that world? Do people know they exist? Or Eventually they come to, but I think at this point, um, all reference to demons has passed into myth. And because okay. only the occasional demon, I guess, manages to slip through. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very rare thing. Does the government know they exist? Probably. <laughs> you know, the, 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 there's probably some there's probably some bureau somewhere within the government to deal with them. I guess, kind of the, like the, the men in black. <laughs> yeah, like, like the men in black. Only they're instead they're wearing like pope outfits because they're dealing with demons. You know, <laughs> instead of the men in black, it's the men in pope hats. <laughs> okay, makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just talking off the top. I've got very little sleep, so I'm talking nonsense. But <laughs> <laughs> here come the men in Pope hats. <laughs> the power of Christ compels you. <laughs> that is perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah, so 
so Dante easily dispatches this demon. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point, uh, Enzo once again tries to persuade Dante to take the job that he'd apparently already agreed to do. Uh, and the job is to find a small child named Alice for the paltry sum of $4 million. It's like a four, it's like a $4 million job. And Dante's just like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> you see, Dante's like, I don't do missing persons. I hunt demons, blah, blah, blah. And Enzo's like, it's $4 million, dude. Maybe if it was for a million rubles, he'd do it. Maybe. <laughs> but Enzo's like, it's $4 million, dude. And need I remind you that the only reason you have your apartment is because I got it for you cheap. You need money, dude. Take the job. Yeah. So Dante's like, well, I guess the toilets do need flushing. <laughs> so he eventually agrees to do the job and find Alice. Um, mm-hmm. So now cut to a scene in a library where a mysterious man with hair is searching for a book and an equally mysterious bald man dressed in an... <laughs> That's why I said with hair to distinguish yeah, him I from was the wondering. bald man. <laughs> Of course, mm-hmm. we'll come to find out later the man with hair is Virgil. Um, but at this mm-hmm. point, that's not revealed in the manga. You're supposed to read the manga and be like, oh, who's this guy? And then later on be like, oh, crap, that was Virgil. Oh, dude. <laughs> but we'll just go ahead and say it's Virgil. Okay. Um, which, even though the manga doesn't reveal that till later. And he's mm-hmm. looking for a book. And a mysterious bald man dressed in an impeccably trimmed suit and accompanied by a woman approaches Virgil and offers to help him find the book he seeks. Um, at this point, uh, they start talking about Sparta, like the bald man, I think relates the story of Sparta more or less, as we explained it earlier, conjecturing Mm -hmm. that this is the story Virgil is looking for. Virgil says no, rather grumpily. And then the (laughs) the bald man instead speculates that Virgil is looking for the story of Ava, who gave birth to the twin sons of Sparta. Uh. And at this point, because reasons, Virgil whips out his sword and slices the woman up. Oh my God. Virgil tends to do that. He gets slightly annoyed at somebody. He'll just whip out his sword and... Basically me! <laughs> He's a grumpy puss. Yeah. He's like, are you testing me? It's like, are you te-? like the woman didn't do anything. She's just standing there. And Virgil's, yeah. Virgil just, because reasons, whips yeah. out his sword and slices her up. Uh, and then the bald man just stands there unfazed. Like, it, it get, like nothing happened. <laughs> he starts rambling on about some knowledge is forbidden for a reason, and people fear evil and seek knowledge to prevail against it. Some are is seduced by evil and <laughs> by the gods fear it, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if you hear the voice acting for this character, this is a guy named Arkham. Like I'm, I'm convinced that the people who worked on Devil May Cry have this obsession with Batman because this bald. This bald man's name is Arkham, as in spelled identically to Arkham as in Arkham Asylum. Okay. So his name is Arkham. Just think Arkham Asylum and Batman. Mm-hmm. And so that's who he is. But at this point, again, we don't know it. It's supposed to be a big reveal. Ooh. <laughs> this is Arkham. And people who played through the game will know exactly who that is. Um, and so, and so <laughs> like, the Arkham reaches out and takes Virgil's sword... And, you know, blood starts to drip from his palm. And at this point, Virgil is impressed, sheathes his sword, and they, the two start to talk about Sparta. And now we cut to Dante, who appears to have found Alice in a castle. And, you know, when I say Alice, think Alice in Wonder, Wonderland, because we're going to see mm-hmm. a Mad Hatter and a talking rabbit before too long. 
um, she's holding a stuffed rabbit, and because reasons, Dante shoots the stuffed rabbit that she's holding. Why? I I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> these 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 Sparta boys, you know, tend to do things that are inexplicable at times. Um, so because reasons, Dante shoots the stuffed rabbit she's holding. When Dante gets to her, though, she turns into a snarling demon, whom Dante quickly dispatches. So this Ooh. is not this. This would appear not to be the real girl, but. We'll see later that maybe it kind of was. Um, <laughs> and so then we cut to Virgil, who's found Enzo on the street. Enzo thinks Virgil is Dante because they're twins. Um, <laughs> and fortunately okay. for Enzo, Virgil was not in a mood to slice him up. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we cut back to Dante, who comes across this humanoid rabbit. And he shoots the rabbit. And it looks basically think the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, because that's what this looks like. Mm-hmm. And the rabbit somehow remains standing as though nothing happened. As Dante moves in to finish the rabbit, a little girl, ostensibly the real Alice, think it is the real Alice, intervenes and begs him to stop. Dante wants her to come with him because, hey, chick, I got $4 million on the line here. (laughs) (laughs) And Alice refuses to leave without the rabbit. At this point, this Mad Hatter type demon appears out of nowhere. And Alice once again turns into a demon and Dante fights the demon and after that conversation ensues because you know nothing starts conversation like a good fight between Dante and a demon. Yeah. Um the Alice demon the Alice demon is not destroyed but the fight comes to an end. Um and Dante prevails at least temporarily at which point conversation ensues and Dante learns that dun 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 his brother is still alive. OMG. Because at this point Dante had been under the impression that Virgil was dead. But now Dante learns that his brother Virgil is alive. And the Hatter asks the rabbit if it has shown Virgil the key. And of course, the key refers to the uh, perfect amulet that you need to undo the seal that Sparta placed on the demon world. But at this point, Dante doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. He's like, what's the key? Whatever. I don't care. I'm young and cocky. Just give, <laughs> the- <laughs> Just give me the girl so I can get my money. Yeah. Um, as it turns out, the whole thing is an illusion, which Dante eventually shatters. He just sort of shoots his pistol into the air, and it kind of hits this sort of invisible glass. And when he does, the whole illusion kind of shatters. And, of course, in the wake of the illusion is an enormous, powerful demon. Uh, Dante fights the demon, and he kills it. But in sort of its last death throes, it shoots out all these spikes from its body. Uh, It looks like Dante's not going to be able to avoid them. It looks like Dante is finished. Then the rabbit intervenes and saves him. Oh, good job, rabbit. Good job, rabbit. That's a good rabbit. Yeah. Um, of course, the ra- the rabbit is basically a, an automaton um, mm-hmm. for someone. It, it does, you know, it's it's not. Yeah, it, it's just an avatar and, or you know an automaton controlled by someone else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it saves Dante and reveals that it's the one who gave D- Dante the contract to find Alice. Oh snap! As it turns out, Alice is a once pure girl who sold her soul to demonic forces in order to become a beautiful adult. And at this point, the girl actually changes into an adult woman. And she kind of sidles up to Dante, do you think I'm pretty? And that's basically what she says, do you think I'm pretty? It's kind of creepy because she was like a little girl, you know, seconds ago. (laughs) And she talks about how when she was a a little girl, no one noticed her. So she sold her soul to demonic forces to become a pretty adult whom people would (laughs) notice. Yeah. And uh, at this point, she turns into a vampire. Mm. And she tries to suck Dante's blood as I mean, because that's, I guess, how she's going to maintain her youth. Oh. You know, well, she's an adult, but she's still a young adult. And so that's how she's going to maintain her youth. Mm-hmm. She's, she's, gone, she's gone full demon, basically, by selling her soul. 
okay. you know. She turns into a vampire and she tries to suck Dante's blood, but Dante's blood is no good for her because he's half demon. And so when she tries to pull away, he actually forces her to, he prevents her from pulling away and forces her to drink more of his blood and it has a terrible effect on her. Um, doesn't quite kill her, but it basically incapacitates her for the time being. So after this encounter, the rabbit, who acts like nothing has happened, says that payment will be forthcoming. I'll leave it with your agent. That is Enso, who is, a, again, a frequenter of houses of ill repute. Um, the, the rabbit also offers to buy Dante's half of the perfect amulet, but Dante refuses. That's his most prized possession. It's his only memento of his mother, who is now dead. Um, and so as Dante's leaving the castle, Virgil walks past him into the castle. And Dante sort of notices him, but doesn't give it much thought and just keeps going on his way, right? Mm-hmm. And so when Virgil is there, a voice speaks to Virgil, explaining at least part of how you, you're going to break Sparta's seal on the other world. It talks of, you know, the Timony grew and how you need both halves of the amulet as one of the ingredients to break the seal. And it may talk about the angels of the seven deadly sins as well. So Virgil sort of gets a primer on at least some of the information. He doesn't get it everything because once we get to sort of the two-thirds climax in the game will realize that Virgil doesn't fully understand how to break the seal. But he gets some information here, enough to sort of set him off, you know, on a quest to, to undo the seal. Um, so that's the first manga. Code 1, Dante. We're through that. Progress! And now we come to Code 2, Virgil. And of course, this one centers around Virgil. Dante makes a very strong appearance, but it centers around Virgil. Um, so the... Chris, remember we talked about how Sparta had, you know basically chained the, the angels of the seven deadly sins to earth and stripped them of their names and their power and all that stuff. But when we open in the second manga, Arkham and Virgil are standing before an enormous statue of a demon, which is dun, da, 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 one of the fallen angels of the seven sins. And so a long, bloody, and painful confrontation ensues between Sparta and the demon in what appears to be sort of a phantasmagorical illusionary world. Virgil wins. You know, predictably. And so when Virgil wins and we come back to the real world, the demon asks for Virgil to give it back its name. You know, because that's the key to its power, and that's its identity that Sparta stripped away from it. It's been in agony for 2,000 years, waiting for someone to give it back its name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Virgil's what Virgil says here is very interesting. He says, I have no name to give you. Take on whatever name you like. And so as a son of Sparta, he sort of empowered the demon to take its own name back for itself. And so the demon calls itself Guomon, which means pride. So this is pride. And once the demon names itself, it bursts forth from the statue in a very impressive looking demonic form mm-hmm. and vows that once the angels of the seven sins are reunited, even heaven itself won't be past our reach. And then it leaves. And so now we can see that the unraveling of Sparta's seals has already begun and Arkham and Virgil are working together to make it happen. And now we cut to Dante eating his favorite food, pizza, and drinking tomato juice. (laughs) (laughs) And so at this point, Enzo comes in. I think Dante's at a bar, actually. And he comes in groveling and complaining about a job that Dante canceled. Dante's like, I'm taking some personal time. His work ethic is very spotty. Mm -hmm. He's trying to run a business, but he only works when he feels like it with, you know, (laughs) all this other kind of stuff. (laughs) Doesn't really care about money. Um, He says he's taking some personal time. You know, to sit there and eat pizza and drink tomato juice. And Enzo says, oh, the client's going to kill me if the job's not done. And you're irreplaceable, Dante. And Dante's like, eh, I'll keep you alive. Don't worry about it. And at this point, a woman with dark hair and different colored eyes enters the bar. This is Lady, 
um, a very popular character from the series, but we're not supposed to know that yet. We're supposed, okay. if you if you play like it, it, well, we are, but we aren't. It's like the manga doesn't say this is Lady, but if you played the game, you'll know that Lady, and you'd be like, oh crap, it's Lady, yay, Lady, because Lady who always cares, who's who's always armed to the teeth and carries a you know a rocket launcher wherever she goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting character. Um, Lady enters the bar and asks if her very drunk friend can sleep it off there for a while. Bartender agrees. And so that's all we see of Lady for now. So then we cut back to Virgil and Arkham, who are speaking... I I think it might be in the same castle where all the stuff with Alice went down, but I'm not sure. Um, So at this point, we realize that the two now know about the seven deadly sins as one of the seals that Sparta placed on the tower and on the gateway to the demon world. Virgil agrees to take care of all of the seven deadly sins, while Arkham is to go off and research to see what else needs to be done in order to undo the seals that Sparta placed there. And they also talk about Dante, and they don't know what they don't know what to do about him. Uh, he's sort of essential to the plan, but he's sort of a wild card, so they need to think about how to deal with him. You know, because mm-hmm. he's he's one who could you know match Virgil in a fight, and he's another son of Sparta, so he's crucial, but he's a wild card. So yeah. they sort of have to plan around him a little bit. And cut to the streets, where Lady is, is in the, the city streets for some reason, and she runs across <laughs> Alice. Uh-huh. She runs across Alice, and now Alice is a young girl again at this point, or at least she looks like a young girl again. And so she offers to take Alice home. And instead of taking Alice home, for some reason, Lady takes Alice to Dante's apartment. Um, at which point, Alice goes all poltergeist. Oh, you know, no. she's... It turns. She turns. She sort of floats in the air, and sort of all the, the objects in the room start, you know, flying around. And it goes all poltergeist. Um, but then she 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 perks her ears up and realizes that Dante is fighting demons just outside. Uh-huh. At which point she appears to get scared and leave. So why did Lady bring Alice to Dante's apartment? I, I really I couldn't tell you. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to have this deep answer. It's like, well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> Because because reasons. Yeah. I, I, I think it was just she was looking for a random place to take the girl. And mm-hmm. for some reason, it happened to be Dante's apartment. But if okay. there's a deeper reason, it escapes me at the moment. Okay. Uh, for some reason, Lady... And then and then Lady hides... In, when, when Lady realizes that Dante's coming home, Lady hides in Dante's shower. So, <laughs> so clearly, she's not supposed to be there. You know? uh-huh. So I think she just lo- was looking for a place to take the girl and yeah. it happened to be Dante's apartment. Mm-hmm. You know... Um, so the lady hides in the shower and, but anyway, we were sort of skipping over, um, uh, and a fairly unimportant cut involving Arkham talking to a mysterious man about Virgil. And basically you, mm-hmm. here you get the point that Arkham is manipulating Virgil, even though Virgil thinks he's manipulating Arkham. So oh, snap. there's manipulation. Yeah. And so anyway, cut back to Dante fighting the demons outside. His pendant breaks, but he fixes it. Um, he comes back to his apartment. He confronts Alice briefly in his apartment, after which she appears to retreat upon seeing Dante's amulet. And now Dante apparently thinks nothing of this and just mm-hmm. you know decides to go take a shower. But of course, we know Lady is hiding in Dante's shower. So Dante's <laughs> heading there to take a shower, but the necklace for his amulet breaks again, and he just picks it up and puts it on top of the counter. Mm-hmm. And then Alice steals it. Because <gasps> <laughs> she's, she's hiding like on the ceiling fan or something. <laughs> 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 you know, so she she takes the amulet and takes it back to Virgil mm-hmm. and Arkham. Uh, back at the hideout where Virgil and Arkham are are scheming and planning, Alice is now an edgy teenager. She's dressed all goth and oh. she's got like a this little choker on, and <laughs> she's wearing the amulet. 
you know, so, so she did, she took it back to Virgil and Arkham, but she's wearing it. Um, <laughs> And she's this edgy kind of goth teenager, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and she, she's in her rebellious phase, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, and she hates how Virgil looks at her with contempt because Virgil has contempt for her because she sold her soul. Um, so she, he looks at her with contempt and she mentions how she hates that. And then, of course, Virgil doesn't care what she thinks. So he's just like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm trying to plan to, to, you know, take my father's power and become God here. I'm, 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 I don't have time to worry about you. So anyway, Dante's upset that he lost his pendant because that's a priceless souvenir to him, a memory of his mother. Mm, yeah. So he eventually confronts the Mad Hatter in a church because reasons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, lot of this, a lot of the stuff in, in these mangas are just like because reasons. You know, they're, they're not particularly well fleshed out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so after some banter, the Hatter offers to tell Dante where his half of the pendant is, or, or rather the amulet is. And at this point, the floor gives way and Dante confronts what turns out to be another of the angels of the seven deadly sins. Whoa. Who's been in agony beneath the church for 2,000 years, waiting to taste Sparta's blood and reclaim its name. Now, the demon can't see. So it, it's, when it smells Dante, he has, this, he has a similar scent to Sparta. So this demon thinks that Dante is Sparta. Oh, snap. And so it initiates a fight with him and asks him to give it back its name. Like, it keeps asking for him to give it back its name. I want my name back. I want my name back. Sparta, give me back my name. And Dante's like, I'm not Sparta, you idiot. And at this point, the fight is so rigorous that Dante sprouts demon wings, I think, for the first time. Because Dante and Virgil and Sparta all have two different forms, right? <laughs> they have their humanoid form and what we'll call their devil trigger form. And in their devil trigger form, they actually assume kind of a demonic appearance. They have wings. And in, in the game, it means like you've got enhanced attack power. You take a lot less damage. Uh, you heal while you're in this form. So it's basically an enhanced state, you know, for combat and stuff. It's a more powerful state. And so Dante sprouts wings, and that's the first sign of his sort of moving in the direction of doing a full devil trigger, which he's not yet done at this point in his life. He didn't, he didn't realize he had the power to do that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the gameplay, it's called devil trigger. And in the game, basically, as you fight enemies, the devil trigger gauge fills up, and once it reaches a certain point, you can hit, like, L1 on the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And you'll you'll assume your devil trigger form. And again, you'll have all these enhanced abilities temporarily. Um, It's kind of cool, but you know, that's skipping ahead. Um, So after defeating the demon, Dante doesn't bother to give it back its name. He just leaves and confronts the Mad Hatter and demands to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, the job, basically the Mad Hatter offered to give Dante the location of the amulet in exchange for a job. And the job was to give that demon back its name to which Dante remarks that he's a demon hunter. So he attacks the Hatter who fights back uh, noting that if Dante would just embrace his inner devil, he could have so much power. Um, But while these two were fighting, Virgil shows up and in the name of Sparta, once again, empowers the demon to choose a name for itself. It chooses sloth. Uh So we have yet, we have yet another of the demons of the seven dead demons having recovered his name. And so now Virgil formally declares his intention to break Sparta's seal, open the demon world, and claim the sword of Sparta for himself, which of course represents all the power of Sparta. Mm-hmm. So Virgil wants to be powerful, even more powerful than he already is. Now Virgil and Dante have a brief con- confrontation during which Virgil takes Dante's half the pendant um, because it falls, it mysteriously falls from above because reasons. Mm-hmm. Like while the two are fighting, the pendant just falls from above. Mm-hmm. Because it does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Virgil takes it. <laughs> um, 
And then that, well, Virgil's got it, right? So now they've got the two halves in the amulet, which they need, and without which they cannot break Sparta's seal. And the Hatter's like, oh, let's keep that, because we need it. And Virgil's like, screw you, and he gives it back to Dante. And you're like, wait a minute, but don't you need that to break the seal on the demonic underworld and obtain your father's power? That's true. But Virgil's like, I can take it back from him whenever I want, because I'm so awesome. <laughs> Basically, that's it. It's arrogance. Yeah. It's Virgil's characteristic arrogance. Um, meanwhile, Arkham is once again talking to the mysterious man in the library, and he notes that three of the angels of the seven deadly sins have been set free, and that it's time to begin preparing to open the gate. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, snap. And so, discounting the... There was supposed to be another manga, like we said before. It was supposed to be called Code 3 Lady. It was supposed to be all about Lady. Okay. But, again, it was never actually released. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, finally, we get to the game. Sort of. Uh, Virgil eventually does free all seven angels of the deadly sins. So that's the first seal broken. And then he sends Arkham to Dante's place of business and to try to goad Dante into coming to the tower, to Tenengru. Because very soon, you see, Tenengru, the tower, has been sealed deep underground. That was part of what Sparta did. He sealed the tower underground. Mm-hmm. But... um. Let's see, Arkham and Virgil are just about to cause the tower to rise up out of the ground, which is part of what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And so, in anticipation of this, Virgil sends Arkham to go Dante into coming to the tower, because they need because they need the blood of Sparta to open the seal, and, you know, the blood of Sparta flows through his two sons. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they also need Dante's half of the pendant, which Virgil gave away at the end of the last manga. <laughs> which Virgil gave back to him. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, Arkham, I realized that I gave this back to Dante, but now that I realize that might not have been the best idea, we need Dante to come back to the tower so we can get it back from him again. Mm-hmm. Like, you fool, if you just hadn't given it away. Yeah. Well, we still need his blood anyway, and I was feeling cocky at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- th- this, is, this doesn't actually happen in-game, but that's what I speculate. Mm-hmm. Might have been the tenor of the conversation. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So anyway, so Arkham shows up at uh, Dante's place of business with an invitation from Virgil to come to the tower. Uh And the invitation is a horde of demons, which gives us our first tutorial mission of the game. And by tutorial, I don't mean that it actually, the game actually explains what to do. It's just, it's your first mission. You're just fighting a bunch of demons. Uh Um, And for a, you know, a first mission in the game, the fighting is pretty intense. Okay. and this is where it, it, you kind of realize that <clears throat> if you played the first two games, this game's going to be a lot harder than the first two. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot harder. <laughs> uh, which I think makes it good. It helps to make it good. So as all this fighting is going on, um, you know, the earth shakes, and in the distance you see the tower rise up from the ground with Virgil standing on top of it, looking down, and apparently waiting eagerly for Dante to arrive. Mm-hmm. So Virgil's already on top of the tower. The, the tower's already been released from the subterranean depths and it's risen to the surface. And so we see that events are rapidly taking place to undo the seal that Sparta placed on the demon world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Virgil's looking down on Dante, watching him fight, eagerly waiting for Dante to arrive. And of course, Arkham is on top of the tower with him. After some somewhat pointless conversation about the tower and its builders, they note how Dante has his half of the amulet, but no notion of its true power. Uh-oh. And then we see Lady. Mm-hmm. who seems determined to, to head into the tower, which she does uh, after very stylishly burning some demons in the exhaust of her motorbike. <laughs> Lady has this really cool motorcycle. Okay. Like, it, 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 
it's clearly built to fight demons because they, these super hot flames come out of the exhaust and they're hot enough to burn demons to death. Okay. So she like burns these demons to death in the exhaust of her motorcycle as she heads toward the tower. And you're like, ooh, who's this lady? What are her motivations? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> and we will. But yeah, that's lady. <laughs> uh, and so cut back to Dante where, where we we have a, a boss fight against a very frustrating sort of grim reaper type demon. Uh-huh. Um Interesting, most of the enemies in this game correspond to one of the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Um, because in hell, these demons were charged with oversight of people who were guilty of one or another of the seven deadly sins. And so, like, most of the small enemies in this game are, like, named, like, Hell Pride or Hell Greed. <laughs> like, they were sort of subsidiary demons in charge of people who had died and gone to hell for one or another uh-huh. particular of the seven deadly sins. Like, you know greedy people or prideful people or yeah. lustful people or whatever, you know? So that's interesting how they kind of tie that to the seven deadly sin mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but yeah, we fight our way through the streets and we fight our way through a strip club full of demons. And we finally come to the base of the tower where we meet Cerberus, whom we mentioned before as one of the guardians that Sparta sealed away with the tower. Yeah. Cerberus is a three headed ice dog. Great big giant dog with three heads. He's covered in ice and he's chained to the base of the tower. He he looks at us and he says, go away, stupid mortal. You're powerless. You're not worthy to be here. You go away before I kill you. I'm a big, bad, three-headed dog. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) He sounds a lot like Richie. A little little bit, yeah. (laughs) Just without the exasperated side. (laughs) He doesn't go, oh, a human. (laughs) But of course, we're, we're not a mere human, but our first proper boss fight of the game ensues. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting fight. Uh, it's like you have to before you can do any damage to him, you have to break the ice, literally break the ice that's you know surrounding his flesh, and then you can kill the heads one at a time, and each head does something a little bit different. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, and then once you win the fight, um, Cerberus acknowledges your strength. He gives you his blessing to go forward, and in Dark Souls fashion, he gives us his soul in the form of an ice weapon. Mm-hmm. So. You know, here's an instance in which I think Dark Souls took some inspiration from Devil May Cry. Uh-huh. Because we have multiple bosses who will essentially give us their souls and give us a new weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like these ice nunchucks. They're, they're pretty cool. <laughs> um, at this, and then at this point, we see a determined and angry lady burst in through some ice on her flashy and highly functional motorbike. <laughs> um, and practically the instant she sees Dante, you see, the thing you got to understand about Lady is she's the type to shoot first and ask questions <laughs> later. Mm-hmm. And so the second she sees Dante, she fires a rocket. Oh at no! <laughs> Why, Lady? <laughs> see, that's just she, that's the way she is. Like if she sees if she sees you and doesn't like the looks of you, she'll just shoot first. And <laughs> so all of the characters are like me. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. It's like shoot first, and we'll worry about it once the carnage is, is sort of sorted through. <laughs> The second she sees Dante, she fires a rocket at him. Now, Dante's unperturbed. He just, he ducks underneath the rocket, sort of Matrix style, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he gr- grabs onto the rocket and rides it around like a hoverboard. <laughs> he just rides it around like a, you know those hoverboards from Back to the Future? Yeah. He, he, he rides it around like a rocket-powered hoverboard. And then he dismounts it just as it strikes the side of the cave mm-hmm. and explodes. That's beautiful. <laughs> he, he's, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. It's a great scene, and he he seems you know completely unperturbed uh-huh. by it. He's just having fun with. It. He's like, oh, this lady just fired a rocket at me. <laughs> oh, I'm just gonna have a ride it and have a little fun. Yeah. 
<laughs> and he's going like woohoo in like adolescent fashion. Like he's having a good old time riding the rocket around. <laughs> he's like, whatever, I'm half demon. This can't hurt me, so I'm just gonna ride it around. Yeah, it makes sense. And so then Lady revs her bike, pops wheelie, and sort of jumps the bike over Dante, the tires coming mere inches from his face, and he just stands there, you know, like it's again like it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. And then she lands behind him and, and drives off. Mm-hmm. And and you know, kind of makes you wish you had Dante's way with women. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. But now we, uh, at this point, we cut, because the, the story of this game is largely told through cutscenes, so much of what we say from this point on is going to be cut to this, cut to that, because a lot of it's just in cutscene. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the gameplay is just, you know, okay, you're trapped in this room, you have to kill X number of demons to escape. Mm-hmm. Or, okay, there's this door, you can't get through it, so you have to find this artifact in one place and put it inside this convenient little notch in another place and the door will open up. That's much of the game. So it, that's not worth going through exhaustively, I don't think, for purposes of the lore. Uh, so we'll just kind of be going from one cutscene to the next at this point. Um, there's a lot of cutscenes, though, so there's a lot of stuff there. Um, so now we cut to Virgil and Arkham on top of the tower. Vir- Virgil notes that they have an uninvited guest, namely Lady. They want Dante to be there because they need him. Uh, but Lady's there, and she's and as far as Virgil knows, she serves no purpose to the ritual. But as we'll come to find out later, Arkham is holding back information from Virgil. Uh-oh. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> so Arkham offers to go ask her to leave, noting that he's acquainted with her. So at this point, we know that there's some sort of prior relationship between Arkham and Lady. Oh, snap. The, the plot thickens. Yeah. And after, after this, it's mostly, again, just overcoming the various gameplay challenges for a while as we kind of make our way up the tower. Uh, along the way, though, we fight the Gigapede. G-I-G-A-P-E-D-E, and it's just what it sounds like, a giant centipede. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. It absolutely must have inspired every giant centipede boss in every hack and slash game since then. Uh, Matter of fact, there's a boss in Neo called the Great Centipede, and (laughs) it works works pretty similarly to the Gigapede, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So that's just one little example of the influence this game has had. But yeah, it's a giant centipede. It's an interesting fight. Excuse me, it's an interesting fight. Um, and then once you defeat that, you get to move on. Um, eventually, though, our progress is impeded by a large door that Dante just can't get through despite his best efforts. Now, interestingly, there's a little panel beside the door, and Dante doesn't think to try to do something with that panel to open the door, right? Mm-hmm. He, uh, he kicks the door, he punches the door, <clears throat> he prepares to shoot the door, and just as he's about to shoot the door, a sort of a very strange character named Jester shows up. Oh, snap! Is he directly from Dark Souls 1 DLC? <laughs> More like directly from Batman. <laughs> uh, like His face looks like the Batman Joker. He cackles just like the uh... Batman Joker. But he's dressed like a Jester. He doesn't wear the cool purple suit like the Joker wears. He's dressed like a court Jester. Okay. Um, he shows up with his mad cackle. And he claims to know a thing or two about the tower, mm-hmm. but Dante has precious little patience for him. You know, Joker's uh, not Joker. Jester is talking in ambiguities and talking in circles, and Dante eventually gets impatient with him and starts shooting his feet to make him dance, or shooting at his feet to make him dance. <laughs> and because Jester talks a lot, and Dante gets impatient with people who talk a lot. At least in this game, he does. Uh, <laughs> eventually, Jester provokes Dante into attacking him with a sword. Uh, but Jester dodges the attack, and Dante's sword happens to strike the panel next to the door. And when he does that, the door opens. Aww. Voila. 
Um, after this, uh, we progress a little further, and we're um, well. We hear Jester speak to us. He thanks us for breaking the lock for him, and then he says he's going to give us a gift. And the gift is in the form of a bunch of flying demons who attack us. Because uh-huh. why not? Because reasons. <laughs> So Jester's kind of a frenemy up until a certain point when you find out who he really is. You know, he'll help you and then he'll hinder you, you know. After we defeat the demons, we are transported to this big circular chamber where we engage a surprisingly challenging boss fight with Jester. Uh-oh. So we find out that Jester's actually fairly powerful. And so we, we have this big, tough boss fight with Jester. And upon depleting his health bar... He sort of cackles and he leaves, and we're transported out of the circular chamber to continue our quest. Um, so you're like, what is this jester? You know, he's a friend, he's a foe. You know, he helps us, but then he tries to kill us, apparently. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all explained later, but uh, yeah, we'll save that for the big reveal okay. at the climax. Um, as we progress, um, we come across two talking swords that are embedded in these two big statues. And these talking swords are Agni and Rudra, two more of the Tower Guardians that Sparta sealed away and that we mentioned earlier. When you first come across the swords, they, they, they ramble on kind of comically about how they need to entertain Dante, their guest, because they haven't had a guest in ages. Dante grows impatient, begins to sigh like Richard. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, we love you, Richard. And he demands for them to let him pass. Uh-huh. At this the swords get serious, and they note that it is their job to guard the door leading forward. And so at which point, the, the statues that are holding the swords basically come alive, and guess what? A boss fight ensues. This fight was no doubt the prototype for Ornstein and Smo in Dark Souls, I'm convinced. Oh yeah? Because initially you're fighting the two statues at the same time. Each one is holding the sword. Each sword corresponds to a different element, like one is fire, one is ice. Mm-hmm. And each statue has its own health bar. So you're huh. essentially fighting two bosses at once. Mm-hmm. And then once you destroy one statue, the associated sword goes over to the other statue, which then attacks you with both. So it's kind of like, you know, an Ornstein and Smo, when you kill one, the other absorbs him, takes his power, and then attacks you again. Hmm. Yeah, you know? I think so it, some, so I'm like, okay, here's another instance where I think this game inspired something in Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see, Miyazaki doesn't draw inspiration just from Berserk. He draws it from many sources. <laughs> many sources. He copies many things. <laughs> yeah, many things. And and the aesthetic of some of the areas, too, kind of evokes Dark Souls a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, a little bit. Not excessively so, but a little bit. Um, the, the aesthetic in Devil May Cry is much flashier and colorful than Dark Souls or Bloodborne. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of the architecture, I think there was some inspiration there. But anyway... So after we, once we win, the swords ask us to, you know, take them with us. And so Dante agrees on condition that the swords say nothing. He doesn't want them to talk. And so they agree. And so now we get a new weapon, which is basically this cool dual sword. You know, we can attack with fire and ice at the same time. And, you know, it's like this really quick, reasonably powerful dual sword weapon. Right. Um, sort of think the Rakuyo, only it's... The blades are the same length, but it's sort of the same premise as the Rakuyo. You know, you got a, a blade in each hand and you're fighting with it, you know. Um, and at certain points, you can combine the two swords into kind of like a Darth Maul double sword thing, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> so after this fight, the next cut scene shows Lady very stylishly fighting some demons as she makes her way through the tower. And then, skip ahead, we see Lady sort of having... Made it a little further up the tower, but she's sitting down. She's taking a break. She's preparing her weapons. Her many, many weapons. So she's preparing her many weapons when Arkham confronts her. 
now we have the confrontation between Lady and Arkham. Yeah. Arkham uh, tells Lady that she, you know, he notices that she has grown stronger. Of course, Lady points a gun at him, but unlike with Dante, she doesn't shoot. <laughs> she just points a gun at him. See, the thing is, you got to realize that every time you see Lady interact with anyone in this game, she points a gun at him or a rocket launcher at him at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every time. Right on to the end. It's like, it, it, she can't talk to, it's like you get the impression she can't talk to anyone without pointing some kind of firearm mm-hmm. at them. She's <laughs> just nervous, point. you know? She's like, oh man, how do I start a conversation? I know. Point a gun. Yeah. That's a conversation starter. Yeah. That, that'll, get the, that'll get the conversational juices flowing. Yeah. <laughs> so she points a gun at Arkham, but she does not shoot. But you're like, wait a minute. She would, she, she would shoot Dante without hesitation. Why isn't she shooting Arkham? Hmm. To which Arkham replies, essentially, you would point a gun at me, your own kin, <gasps> your, your dear papa. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Oh Big God. review. Yes. Arkham, is la- Arkham is lady's father, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, shit. Now, when Arkham says this, you know... Lady doesn't have like a Luke Skywalker type reaction. No, it's okay. impossible. Mm-hmm. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. <laughs> Obi Wan never told you what happened to your father. Anyway, sorry. I love Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> but no. Lady already knows it. But she says that her dead mother is the only family she's had. Basically, Aww. rejecting him. Yeah. Um, as we come to find out later, it was Arkham who killed Lady's mother. Oh damn. Um. But we technically not supposed to find that out till later in the game, okay. I guess. Um, but Lady's mother is dead. Arkham killed her. Um, and Lady knows this. And so at that point, she finally attacks Arkham, who pretty effortlessly knocks her off the side of the tower. After noting that she has broken his heart and that he is the one who gave her her name. At this point, we don't know what her real name is. Oh. Now, as she falls, she shoots at him and the bullet just grazes his cheek. So, at this point, Lady seems to be falling to her death. Uh-huh. But as she's falling, Dante catches her by the ankle. Oh, so sweet. Well, now, th- this makes her very cranky. Oh, no. Is she going to point a gun at him? Oh, here's the thing. She, she demands that he let her go. <laughs> and, and, and he hesitates for just a moment because he's afraid that she'll hit the ground and go splat. Yeah. Because at this point, they're way, 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 way up in the tower. Yeah. Right. So, in real life, she'd probably be dead before she hit the ground because of, like, asphyxiation and the effect on your lungs of falling and all that. Uh Um, But anyway, so Dante hesitates for a moment, not wanting her to go splat, and when he hesitates for a moment, she shoots him right in the head. Oh my god. (laughs) But I mean, it's it's like Wolverine, the bullet sort of bounces off and doesn't really do much to him. But she shoots him right in the head, (laughs) At, at which point he reflexively releases her and she falls for a bit and she very stylish because her rocket launcher has a bayonet attached to it. It's like a rocket launcher with a bayonet. Who'd have thought? But uh, (laughs) she kind of uses the bayonet from her rocket launcher to kind of dig into the side of the tower and break her fall. Uh And she sort of crouches on top of the rocket launcher displaying impeccable balance, Uh, almost inhuman balance. And so so Dante, I don't think she's a demon, but she's just in exceptional physical condition, you know, Uh Lifetime of training and all that. Yeah. So Dante peers over to kind of check on her, at which point she shoots him in the head again. <laughs> <laughs> and so of course the bullet sort of bounces off his head. Um, at which point Dante says, you know, whatever, do as you please, and he leaves. <laughs> um, so since Dante survived two shots to the head with barely a scratch, Lady concludes that Dante is a demon. <laughs> so, which makes you think, okay, so... detective skills. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> Brilliant detective right there. You know, Sherlock Holmes in the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> but now here's the thing, though. If she, if she only now discovered that he's a demon, then when she confronted him initially and shot a rocket at him, she must have thought he was human. She wanted to murder him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Like when, when you first shot a rocket at him, you, must, you thought he was human. <laughs> oh. So it's like, oh, yeah, she's, she's very much the shoot first, ask questions later type. She's somebody she doesn't know and doesn't like the look of. She'll just, uh, just kill him now and then we can figure out who they were yeah. later. <laughs> you know. Makes sense. She's something else. <laughs> I, I guess it does make perfect sense. Um, but after we overcome some more gameplay challenges as Dante, <clears throat> we finally arrive at the top of the tower and confront Virgil. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, after some witty banter, a boss fight ensues. Now here's the setting, right? You're on top of the tower. The boss fight ensues with Virgil in the dark night. It, it, it's nighttime, it's dark. The rain is pouring, yet even though the rain is pouring, the fight somehow takes place against the backdrop of the light of the full moon. So, like, yes, it's raining. Raining pretty hard, but you can see the full moon clearly in the backdrop while you're fighting. Because mm-hmm. video games. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a partially cloudy sky, and the rain happens to be just over where you are at the tower, yet you can still see the moon. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> anyway, video games, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I love to poke fun at video game logic. Um, okay, it's raining hard. Yeah, we can see the full moon clearly in the backdrop as we're fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, here we go. This is our first boss fight with Virgil, who is, again, consistently the most difficult boss in the game. You fight him multiple times. You fight him at least three times in the game. This is the first. And with Virgil, you know he can break your combos. He offers very few openings. It takes significant technique and mastery of the gameplay mechanics to beat Virgil. You can't just, you know, spam attack. You can't just mash buttons. You have to really know the game's combat mechanics and what you're doing to exploit the few and far between openings that Virgil gives you. You know, um, and in this fight, he does, this fight is hard and he doesn't even use his devil trigger, which he does in the second and third fights, (laughs) you know. So it's a very difficult fight against Virgil. And I think that's deliberate and that's consistent with the lore because Virgil should be Dante's strongest opponent because in terms of the Lord, Virgil's either just as strong as Dante, or I think actually Virgil's the stronger of the two, technically. And Dante just manages to to win a lot of times because he's, you know, cunning and skill or whatever. But Dur- Virgil, I think, has the greater raw power of the two. Um, and it's really the smarter of the two, too, but Dante's pretty savvy in combat, so that saves his bacon, you know, a few times, you know. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so after you deplete Virgil's health bar, a cutscene ensues where the brothers continue to fight. And Virgil wonders out loud why Dante refuses to gain Sparta's power. And Dante's like, yeah, I don't care about any of that. I just don't like you. <laughs> you know. And I have no father. And blah, 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 blah. At this point, Dante is sort of, you know, he doesn't think much of the legacy of his father. And he sort of resents Sparta for allowing their mother to die and all this other stuff. Um, <clears throat> so he basically says, my sole motivation for being here is I don't like you. Um, and that it's been a year since they last met. So now we know that the events of the manga happened, I guess, about a year ago. Or at least the events of the first manga happened about a year ago. If we're paying attention and notice that Dante says it's been a year since we last met. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so the brothers fight some more. And, you know, it, Virgil and Dante are twins, but Virgil's hairstyle pretty much makes him look very different from Dante. But in the rain, he's he's got this updo. You know, this kind of cool anime-looking updo. 
But in the rain, the updo is undone, and his hair sort of falls down. At that point, he looks just like Dante while they're fighting. Oh, sir. Because most of the time, Virgil's face has this sinister, arrogant gleam to it, and it makes it clearly different from Dante. But when the rain undoes his updo, <laughs> he looks just like oh Dante. <laughs> and so that, that, that's, that's a pretty powerful sort of bit of narrative yeah. there. Um, and as the two fight, Virgil finally stabs Dante in the gut with his own sword, incidentally named Yamato. Mm-hmm. And so Virgil stabs Dante in the gut. Dante's lying oh. there bleeding. And then Virgil takes, I know, our, our, our protagonist, he's going to die. Oh. <laughs> and then uh, at this point, Virgil takes Dante's half of the amulet. And then he says, you know, might controls everything. And without power, you can't protect anything, let alone yourself. And then he leaves Dante lying oh. there to die. Um, but Dante doesn't die yet. He sort of wakes up and starts to get up. And then, at this point, Virgil stabs Dante again, this time with Dante's own sword. Runs him through with it. What? He runs Dante through with his own sword, at which point Dante's lying there, bleeding out. And here, Arkham arrives, and Virgil notes that he, in fact, has Dante's half of the pendant. Uh-huh. But as Dante's lying there, bleeding out, he suddenly enlivens, and he's surrounded by a glowing aura. And he picks up his sword, and he makes as if he's going to fight Virgil some more, and Virgil makes as if he's going to fight Dante, but Arkham's like, dude, we should leave. We have everything we need. (laughs) Uh, So Virgil's like, okay, and so Virgil leaves, and Dante tries to pursue a bit, but they they leave. But then, as Dante goes to, I guess, pursue Virgil, he takes on a demonic form for a brief time. Then he reverts to human form and continues on. And from this point in the game, we have the Devil Trigger ability. Now, you have the Devil Trigger ability for the entirety of the first two games, but you don't have it for, like, the first third of this game, because, in terms of the story, that ability hadn't awakened in Dante yet. Um, but when, you know, Virgil stabs us and leaves us for dead, that awakens the Devil Trigger ability. <laughs> so now we have that mechanic <clears throat> for the rest of the game, which is pretty cool. Huh. And you kind of need it, because the fights get pretty tough from this point on. Um, so now Dante, at this point, leaps off of the tower very stylishly falling and killing demons along the way until Leviathan shows up. Remember Leviathan, our yeah. flying whale? Leviathan appears and swallows Dante. You know, Jonah and the whale, right? <laughs> Leviathan comes up and swallows Dante. Um, of course, you know, Jonah was swallowed up because, you know, God said go to Nineveh, and he didn't, so the whale swallowed him up. Dante was swallowed because he had to show off <laughs> statusly killing demons while he's falling down the side of the uh, the tower, and, the you know, the whale swallows him up. So in both instances, in Jonah and in Dante's case, Dante's flashy arrogance was being punished, and Jonah's disobedience was being punished. So it's kind of a parallel there, you know? Um, so anyway, you get swallowed up by Leviathan, and at this point, you know, I researched a little bit of background on Leviathan. Most of the bosses and most of the enemies in this game don't have anywhere near as rich a backstory as they tend to in, like, Bloodborne and Dark Souls. Like, you could talk all day long about Pontiff Sullivan or Ludwig, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but most of the bosses in this game are pretty thinly developed, except for, you know, Virgil and a couple of others. Um, but Leviathan was initially some sort of bioweapon developed by Mundus, you know, the demon lord of the underworld. Right. And eventually, it became the home of all the damned souls who went to hell for the sin of envy. And those souls are its power source. Mm-hmm. And again, it was eventually one of the tower guardians that Sparta sealed away, but Virgil and Arkham released it. Hence, it was flying around the tower and was able to swallow up Dante. And so, the eighth mission of the game is all about fighting our way out from inside Leviathan. Um, 
and you're in Leviathan's guts, and you're, the whole place looks like intestines and guts. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it's it's kind of like the Valley of Defilement. There's there's poison everywhere. There's all these grotesque things. Um, and this is where to progress, you have to destroy these big, gross pustules that look like spoiled sushi. <laughs> you know, you have to destroy those to progress. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually you'll come across an interesting boss fight. It's like, you'll find this relic, I forget what it's called, but it's essentially the concentrated souls of those who died and went to hell for the sin of envy. Okay. And you, you place that in the right place, and it opens up, it gets rid of this sort of invisible wall, and, and you embark upon the boss fight that you need to win in order to escape Leviathan. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it's a fight against this... It's a fairly riveting fight against this odd trio of specialized organs. Uh, your objective is to destroy the middle organ. The other two organs resurrect after you destroy them for a certain period of time. So to win the fight, you have to destroy the middle one. <clears throat> um, but the ones on the left and right sort of hinder you along the way. Um, and while you're dealing with those organs, you're also dealing with an unending onslaught of endlessly respawning demons. So it's, it's, a, it's a fairly intense fight. There's, there's a lot going on. You have like all these enemies to keep track of at once. And while you're trying to look for the rare opening to strike the organ in the middle, because the organ in the middle is protected by this shield, and you have to wait for it to open up at certain times and hit it. So it, there's a lot to keep track of. It's, it's a pretty cool fight. Um, but after you win, um, <clears throat> let's see. You um, There's this cutscene where... But when you win, Leviathan is basically killed, and it falls from the sky. And then you basically cut your way out of its eye oh. after it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lady happens to be there. And they, she and Dante exchange a little banter, and they fight some demons together. And after that, Dante asks her, what's your name? And she insists that she has no name. And then Dante's like, whatever, Lady. And so that's what he first calls her lady. Oh. <laughs> and eventually that's what she adopts as her name. Uh, lady. Mm-hmm. And there's another cutscene, a very short one around this time, in which Virgil and Arkham go through a set of double doors, apparently moving deeper towards Layer of Judgment, where Sparta established the second seal and all that stuff. It's a very short cutscene. It probably wasn't even worth mentioning, but you kind of see them mm-hmm. go through this double door, and you can tell they're making more and more progress towards getting toward the Layer of Judgment, which I may not have said this before. The actual place where Sparta did the ritual to implement the second seal is called the Layer of Judgment, and so that's where they're headed. It's deep in the tower. Okay. And why we had to go to the top first and fight Virgil, only to then go down, who knows? <laughs> Because video games. Because uh, it might have been more logical for them to lure Dante deep in the tower towards the layer of judgment, which is the place where they're going to need to bring together all the ingredients to undo the, the ritual, right? Mm-hmm. So you think they want to get Dante closer to that. But nope, they lure him to the top of the tower, get his pendant. Then they have to go deeper into the tower to the oh. layer of judgment mm-hmm. to undo the seal. So it's like up, down, up, down. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> but, you know, video games. <laughs> Time is convoluted in Devil May Cry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. So as we move closer to the layer of judgment, we eventually come across yet another of the guardians that Sparta sealed away, and her name is Nevin. Now, Nevin was almost definitely an early inspiration for Quelag. Um She's a lightning-spewing vampire demon who's nude from the waist up, but drapes her hair over her breasts, much like Quelag. And she's very sultry and seductive. She makes a play at well, but basically, when you meet her, the initial conversation is just every word is laced with innuendo. Mm-hmm. 
Um, she talks about, <clears throat> and she intimates that she had a sexual relationship with Sparta at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, a boss fight ensues, and incidentally, her move set is very reminiscent of a boss named Hino Anma from Neo. So here's another instance in which Neo took inspiration from this mm-hmm. game. So yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting. This game was so influential, you know, even down through you know, modern times. Um, but anyway, so like you, you fight her, and then she has all these lightning moves and all these melee attacks, and she'll she'll utter certain phrases throughout the boss fight, and each and you'll come to learn that each phrase is sort of a telegraph of what move she's going to do next. Oh. So that, that's kind of a way to sort of predict what attack is coming and mm-hmm. take action to avoid it or whatever. Smart. Yeah, you know, it's good. It's a cool fight. She's like she'll be, she'll say, for instance, "Do you like do you like this?" And then she'll shoot three or four lightning balls at you, and she'll say, "Get ready, sugar." And then she'll do some melee attacks. <laughs> <laughs> and so we we fight her, we fight her, and in, she has a second phase, um, in which she has this r- really vicious. Basically, the only t- the only attack she does is she'll come towards you really fast, uh-huh. and she'll try to grab you. Okay. And if she gra- unlike Alice, she can drink demon blood without it hurting her. Like she'll grab you, she'll bite you, and it'll drain just a ton of your HP, and it'll restore part of hers. Okay. It does massive damage. If you don't have at least like two thirds health, you're dead, pretty much, if I remember correctly. Because I survived it once, and that's only because I had almost full health. And when she got done, I was at like very little health. So it does massive damage, and it restores quite a bit of her health. Needless to say, I did not succeed in that particular attempt against her. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's her only attack in the second phase, but it's a vicious attack. So most people, I think, just kind of stay away from her and shoot her with pistols until it whittles down her health. Because it's just too risky to get close to her with that attack, you know. But anyway, once you win the fight, she gives herself to you in the form of an electric guitar. It's this really flashy, purple, wicked-looking electric guitar that is a weapon uh-huh. that you can use. You know, it, it emits all these electric balls and these electric pulses, time to rhythm. And so when she she turns into this guitar, and when Dante gets it, he plays like a mini concert in the boss arena. <laughs> you know, oh, he starts jamming on the guitar like. <laughs> it's, it's actually a pretty cool little scene. Uh, so that, that's that's a bit of levity there after a, a really tough boss fight. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the next cutscene, Lady very stylishly kills some demons and enters the path that ultimately ultimately leads to the layer of judgment. It's not really important for the lore. It's just. You know, an instance to kind of see Lady be all cool and kill some demons. <laughs> now, in the next cutscene, the next cutscene is important. Um, here, we see Virgil and Arkham open the final door leading to the Lair of Judgment. Um, and as the two are heading in, Virgil stops, and then he speculates that Arkham failed to kill Lady out of some sort of fatherly sentimentality, which he sees as weakness. And so Arkham sort of blah, 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 and then uh, Virgil just kind of gets fed up and stabs Arkham with his blade. (laughs) Just runs him through with Yamato, noting that sentimentality has prevented Arkham from fully attaining the demonic power that he has sought. And this is a good time to give some backstory on Yarnum. Not Yarnum, Arkham, I'm sorry. (laughs) Too much Bloodborne. Uh, Arkham. See, every time you see Arkham, his face is all jacked up. He's got this sort of scar that seems to have a life of his own. It seems to ripple and undulate and move on his face in a pretty eerie fashion. And his eyes are sort of always bugged out all the time. And he's bald and he talks in this creepy voice. A really creepy guy, you know? 
As it turns out, he is a scholar who is obsessed with obtaining demonic power. To that end, he sacrificed Lady's mother in some sort of demonic ritual. Now, the ritual did give Arkham some supernatural power, as we'll see, but it left his face all jacked up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the ritual failed in that it disfigured him, sort of like you know, think Doctor Doom, I guess, from Fantastic Four. He his face was disfigured in some kind of black magic ritual, I think. Um, it's kind of the same thing here, but it did give him some supernatural power. Um, and so that's 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 the deal with that. He killed Lady's mother to sacrifice her in a demonic ritual to gain demonic power. Mm-hmm. Um, but once um. So, you know, Ar- Vir- at this point, Virgil stabs Arkham and says, your power's incomplete. And then Arkham is like, well, aren't you incomplete, too? You're half human, half demon. Right. At which point, yeah, you know, it's a valid point, but it just gets on Virgil's nerves. Virgil says, shut up, and then appears to finish Arkham off. <laughs> that, that's Virgil's response. Shut up. <laughs> like, aren't you incomplete, too? Human and demon blood flows through your veins. You know, your eyes are yet to open. <laughs> <laughs> to which Virgil says, shut up, yeah. and then stabs him again or whatever and leaves him bleeding out, mm-hmm. you know? At this point, Arkham at least appears to be bleeding out on the floor. Mm-hmm. Later on, <clears throat> next cutscene, oh, well, then as Virgil is leaving, he goes through the door and says, now that the last door is open, I have no more use for you. So it's like, yeah, whatever, I don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're dead. Plus, you got on my nerves. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Virgil, you know, kills people because reasons. Yeah. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Just you get on his nerves, and that's yeah. it. Um, and so later on, Lady and Dante stumble across what appears to be Arkham's corpse. They have a brief kind of flirty fight. At which point, Dante notes that he, because you know, Lady mentions that that's her father, and Dante notes that he too has a dysfunctional family, and then he leaves to go after Virgil, but Lady stays behind. And then once Dante is gone, Arkham, who is still alive, somehow speaks to Lady. He claims that, you know, he he hasn't been himself. All the bad things he's done, Mm -hmm. I think, implies that this includes killing Lady's mother. All the bad things he's done were because of Virgil's manipulation and influence. Um, At this point, Lady thinks that Virgil has basically possessed Arkham and forced him to do all these bad things. Mm -hmm. Um. And so at this point, Lady abandons her hatred for Arkham, appears to love him, or come to love him, and then Arkham begs Lady to, to find Virgil and stop him from breaking Sparta's seal on the demon world and throwing everything into chaos. Uh-huh. And then he appears to die. Oh. Lady, Lady weeps over him. She arranges his corpse in kind of a beautiful, reverential fashion. Oh. You know, she... She folds his arms over his chest and she places in his bosom this book that he always carries around. You know, she picks up the book and holds it lovingly and puts it in his arms and sort of folds his arms over the book, you know, like she's going to put him in a coffin. I mean, she has to leave him there, but she just arranges his body very beautifully and very affectionately. And she's crying and weeping over him and stuff. So once she comes to think that Virgil was controlling him the whole time, all that hatred just melts away and she appears to love her father once more. So it's kind of a touching scene. Because then we cl- then we return to our intrepid protagonist Dante, who is getting closer himself to the layer of judgment. And here we want to here we run across the last of the guardians that Sparta sealed away, named Beowulf. You know, he kind of looks like the monster in Beowulf. <laughs> you know, now Beowulf is a cranky boy. Oh, he's like what? 
I know that. I know that smell. Sparta, <laughs> filthy traitor. Sparta, blah blah blah. Sparta, I'm gonna kill Sparta. Blah blah blah. I'm gonna kill every last blood relation of Sparta because he betrayed demon kind. Blah blah blah. Boss fight ensues, obviously. Um, though this time when we win, we get no new weapon because when we win, Beowulf retreats. He's like, oh, my sight is gone, but I'm going to chase your scent through all eternity and I'm going to kill you. But despite his big words, he retreats. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, I'm going to chase you for all eternity. Well, I'm right here, yet you're retreating. So, <laughs> oh, burn. Whatever. <laughs> and, so, and so Dante makes some, you know, wise crack and then just keeps going. Yeah. Dante's making wise cracks in the face of extreme danger all throughout the game. It's, a, it's good levity, mm-hmm. you know. And after the fight... It briefly cuts to the scene, the place where Arkham's corpse was, and we see that Arkham's corpse is no longer there. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. <clears throat> now, sometime later, we encounter Jester again. It's shortly after we find some artifact. It's like this glowy purple ball. I forget what it's called. Mm-hmm. And it seems to hurt Dante. Dun- Dante's holding it, and it seems to hurt him. He kind of drops to his knees like he's in pain. And at this point, Jester shows up, our favorite Joker ripoff, and he tells us that Virgil means to undo Sparta's seal and connect the human and demon worlds. And he tells us that the artifact we've got is the way forward. However, anyone who holds it, it'll drain your soul away from you as you hold it. So that's why it's crippling Dante. And that uh, in exchange for that, though, it's going to give him great power. And at the end of a long and rambling tirade, he finally tells Dante, basically, you've got a limited time before this thing kills you, so you better hurry. And then he leaves. And Dante's like, you could have told me that at first, dude. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> this, is, is, this thing is draining his life force. And at that point, this, this is a unique mission. Basically, your mission is to get this artifact to where it needs to be in the tower before it kills you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're constantly fighting enemies along the way. But the offset is you're in constant devil trigger mode and the enemies drop an awful lot of health power-ups, you know, so it is, do- excuse me, it is doable. Um, your HP is constantly draining and you have to get the artifact to where it goes before it kills you. And I think I died once in this mission before I finally got the artifact to where it needed to go like once or twice, maybe once or twice. Um, but it's a fun little mission. And so we get the artifact to where it needs to be. And then we get to go forward. Um, and then sometime after that, it's possible to trigger, another boss fight with Jester. I didn't trigger it, but someone else did, and I found it on YouTube, so I know it's possible to trigger another boss fight with Jester with Jester after this. Um, and it's more difficult than the first one, but it's basically the same thing. You're teleported to this circular chamber where you fight Jester, and after the fight, he leaves. And then you are transported back to where you were, and you continue. So, fight Jester again. Uh, and then sometime after this, we encounter a big, scary, fiery blue horse and chariot type boss that's very similar to the Executioner's Chariot in Dark Souls 2. Very okay. similar. <laughs> so if you can think of the Executioner's Chariot in Dark Souls 2, you've got the basic idea, only think flashier and brighter and much more blue. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the horse is the boss. The, its name is Geryon. G-E-R-Y-O-N. Again, this is not a very well-developed boss. Not like your typical Souls boss, but... Uh, I think the most we know about this particular boss is that it used to be a noble horse of legend <clears throat> that was ridden by many heroes. But then at some point, demonic essence corrupted it, and it is the gnarly boss we see today. Um, 
One interesting aspect of the boss fight is that this boss has the ability to manipulate time. And so if we get caught up in that, then we'll be sort of frozen in place for a bit. And, you know, it's kind of a heart stopper because, oh, no, I can't move and I've got projectiles coming at me. You know, it's kind of a heart stopper if you get caught up in it. You know, so it's an interesting dimension to the boss fight. And after you win the boss fight, you get the ability to stop time. So that's cool. Yeah. And in terms of the gameplay, you have like one of four or five styles you can adopt. And each style will give you like a special action you can use with the circle button. Um, I prefer Trickster because it gives you a nice evasive maneuver, but you know, you can do other things with the other styles. And Quicksilver is a style, and if you use that, you can kind of briefly stop time in combat. So it's kind of cool. Um, the first time Dante uses this ability, though, is in a cutscene just after the boss fight. Like, they, you initially encounter the chariot on a bridge, the bridge collapses, and then you fight the boss in this arena down below the bridge. Then after the fight, some rubble dislodges from the bridge, and then Dante just stops time just before the debris crashes on him. Uh-huh. And so he just walks out from underneath it, and then a few minutes later, time resumes and the debris falls. You know, so it's basically telling you you have the ability to stop time now. So that's cool. And then the next cutscene, Virgil encounters Beowulf and kills him. Um, and so Virgil takes Beowulf's special weapon, which is sort of the, these gloves and boots that you know, give you that greatly enhance your hand-to-hand combat. So Virgil takes this weapon, and so naturally we have to deal with it next time we fight him. Uh, which is right now. Uh, we eventually make our way to Virgil in the Layer of Judgment. He unites the two halves of the amulet, offers them up, and then he offers up his own blood, but nothing happens. Mm-hmm. He's, he gets really frustrated. Why is nothing happening? I've got, I've got my blood. I've got the amulet. What else am I missing? Because Virgil doesn't realize that the missing ingredient here is the blood of a descendant of the priestess that Sparta sacrificed to implement the seal in the first place. You need that. And so without that, the seal's never going to break. But Virgil speculates that he needs more blood. You know, he just didn't offer up enough uh-huh. blood. And it's at this point that Dante arrives. And so Virgil says, well, if I can kill my, if I can, you know, kill my brother and drain him of his blood, it should be enough blood to do the ritual. So the two talk uh-huh. for a little bit. Uh, and then they fight. And the boss fight ensues. And this, this boss fight is extremely difficult. This one had me in conniptions. It took me many tries to beat it. Because um, not only does Virgil have all the attacks that he had <clears throat> the first time he fought him, but now he goes into Devil Trigger. And in Devil Trigger, he's basically invincible and his HP restores while he's in the form. And towards the end of the fight, he basically stays in Devil Trigger almost constantly. He only briefly reverts to human form, and that's your opportunity to damage him. But he leaves very few openings. You have to be very sophisticated with the combat mechanics to exploit his openings. And you, you can't just wail on him, you know, because he can break your combos and all this crazy stuff. So it's a really frustrating <laughs> fight, you know. Really difficult fight. Um because of the how much he stays in Devil Trigger and you know can heal himself and become invincible in that form. Um, not to mention the powerful melee attacks he has because of the the Beowulf weapon, you know, with the punches and the kicks. Um, mechanically, the Beowulf weapon is like Ifrit in the first game, and that's you know some fiery gloves and boots that Dante can get to use powerful hand to hand techniques. Uh, so think Ifrit in DMC one, and you'll get you know you'll know what this is. But yes, yeah, so it's a very difficult boss fight. Um, but you finally win, and then once you deplete Virgil's health bar, a cutscene ensues in which the brothers continue fighting, and Lady arrives. Dante tells her, basically, go away, you're just a human, you know, you can't handle this, whatever, we're the demon boys, let us fight. And so, but Lady, nonetheless, tries to attack Virgil, but she does little more than to annoy the two as they fight each other. It's like, you know, Foghorn, Leghorn, go away, boy, you bother. <laughs> you know, you're just, 
she's really nothing more than an annoyance, you know, as these two demon brothers are fighting. Eventually we come to a point where Lady accuses Virgil of manipulating her father, to which Virgil's like, you fool. Yeah, like, I'm not manipulating him. Um, and here, guess who shows up? The father. Jester shows up. Oh, snap! <laughs> he's applauding, and he's noting how smoothly things have gone. OMG! He attacks Lady, takes her rocket launcher, and reveals that he is Arkham. Jester oh is Arkham. God! Yeah, dun dun dun. You see, so the rich, the demonic ritual he performed worked. It gave him the ability to transform into Jester and utilize supernatural abilities that way. Oh wow! Yeah, so Jester, is, and he alternates between the two forms during this conversation. Uh-huh. Um, as it turns out, Arkham slash Jester was manipulating everybody all along, controlling events to get Dante, Virgil, and Lady in the layer of judgment all at the same time, and in a weakened state. Uh-huh. That's the reason he sort of attacks you. He helps you, yet he attacks you, because he needs you to get to where you're going, but he needs you to be weak. You know? Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Virgil. He lured the two brothers there. He had them fight each other, so that by the time he revealed himself, they would both be too weak to stand against him. Uh-huh. So it's like he manipulated everybody. He, he drew Lady to the layer of judgment because he needed her there. Because Lady, as it turns out, is a blood descendant of the priestess that Sparta sacrificed to implement the seal. So her blood is the final ingredient to break the seal after the amulet and the blood of the sons of Sparta. So she was the, the final ingredient that Virgil was missing. That's why when Virgil did his thing, nothing happened because Lady wasn't there yet. And so Jester slash Arkham stabs Lady with her own bayonet and offers up her blood and finally breaks Sparta's seal. Of course, this whole time he's talking and talking and sort of revealing his plan, you know, in classic supervillain fashion. I'm so brilliant. I did all this stuff. Blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and basically his goal is he wants to go to the demon world and obtain the demon sword of Sparta so that he himself can essentially assume the place of God and rule over the earth in pandemonium and chaos. So he's a mere mortal, but he wants to be a god. So that's why he wants the power of Sparta. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. Dun, 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 big plot twist, big reveal. Nevertheless, even though Lady Virgil and Dante are all weakened, they all muster the strength for one last attack against Arkham, but he notes that the spell is broken, that is, Sparta's seal is broken, and exhibiting unnatural speed and strength, he repels them all and escapes to this sort of central platform that's now raised up in the room. Like Once the ritual was broken, the whole configuration of the tower starts to change. It's like, there's this sort of... S- metallic cylinder at the core of the tower and that starts to rise up and you know it, 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 it's you see it as the central platform in the room sort of rising up dramatically arkham is standing on top of it and he he's going to assume the powers of sparta and become the new god capital g uh, <laughs> he's ascending up with his platform to the top of the tower and it's all glowing red and very ominous and very cool <laughs> and uh Dante and Lady, you know, they talk for a little bit. Lady vows to stop Arkham. Dante vows to do the same, and she better hurry or Dante's going to get all the credit. Uh, Next cutscene, the exterior of the tower starts to collapse, you know, away from this sort of central cylinder that's now rising up out of the ground, right? Uh, The glowing red cylinder that's rising, rising, rising to the top. And the ensuing destruction brings Dante into contact with Lady's rocket-powered bike, which Dante takes and uses to make a very stylish escape. Uh-huh. Killing, killing demons all the way. 
Nice. And then once Dante finds a comfortable perch somewhere in the tower, the bike explodes. <laughs> <laughs> leaving, leaving only the handlebars. Oh. Which Dante carelessly casts aside and makes his way into the tower. Mm-hmm. So it's like, sorry, lady, I kind of blew up your bike. Yeah. I hope she has insurance. <laughs> I hope she has a good insurance. <laughs> I, I do, too. <laughs> Dante just blew up her souped-up motorbike. Uh, yeah. So now we're we're once again making our way to the top of the tower where Arkham is. So it's like we went up, we went down, now we're going up again. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> up, down, up. Um, now at this point, we've acquired the Beowulf melee weapon, so that's one more weapon in our arsenal to use. Uh-huh. Um, the next boss fight, a- as you sort of make your way through the tower again, you come across another boss fight with what's called the Fallen, which is one of the Fallen Angels. And not, I don't think it's one of the Angels of the Seven Deadly Sins, but it's another angel that was cast out of heaven. I, I researched the lore on this particular boss a little bit, and there's not much. Uh, basically, this boss was an angel that was cast out of heaven for deceiving people. Mm-hmm. And she was beguiling people, and that was enough to get her cast out of heaven. And she wields what looks like a big lightsaber in the form of a great sword. Uh-huh. You know, like if a, if a lightsaber were a great sword, that's what this weapon would be. You know, this big luminous purple sword. Uh, so we defeat this boss, and then we run around. We retrieve three re- three relics called Ore Halcon fragments, which grant us access to this luminous futuristic looking elevator that takes us up to cut to a scene in which Arkham is finalizing the ritual to connect the human and demon worlds and gain Sparta's powers. Mm-hmm. You know, so we don't see where we assume this is where Dante is going in the elevator. Um, and on the platform with Arkham at this time, see everything's like glowing red and it's all really cool. And up on the platform with Arkham are these seven really eerie, ugly statues, each one representing one of the angels of the seven deadly sins. And they're all kind of shaped like giant bells, which is fitting because now these statues kind of levitate in the air and they start to ring as if they're tolling the death knell for the human race. It's very eerie and ominous and cool. And then the heavens open and this glowing red, orangey energy appears in the sky. And then Arkham calls forth the forces of hell and invites them to spread carnage and despair, at which point he'll become the ultimate ruler of the world engulfed in pandemonium. Oh, and then it's, it's really cool. And then he's, <laughs> he's sort of enveloped in this red glowing energy, at which point he ascends up into the heavens towards the ominous glowing orange ball of light in the sky, which I think is just the gateway to the demon world. It's appeared in the mm-hmm. sky. So Arkham ascends up into the heavens glowing red, and enters this gate. So now it's, it's pretty clear that Arkham is pretty close to achieving his objective. Right. So now we cut to Lady and Dante, who have happened across each other again. You know, at some point, you know, several times during this, you know, dialogue, Lady points a gun at Dante, as she always does. Um, <laughs> Lady, this is just how they interact. It's how they yeah. flirt, I guess. They, they, flirt yeah. by fight. they flirt by fighting. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, Lady vows to push ahead and stop Arkham. Dante insists that she, you know, give it up because you know she's just a human. This is not a job for a mere human. Uh-huh. Uh, but Lady insists that it's her family matter. And then finally Dante's like, there's going to be consequences if you go. It's like, I'm, I'm going to forcibly stop you from going after him because you're no match for him, you know. Um, but at this point, Lady is like, well, you know what? I wasn't planning on letting any demons live anyway. Which means she was planning to kill Dante at some point. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a boss fight ensues with Lady. You're fighting Lady. Oh, no. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. The boss fight ensues with late. Now, she uses a lot of really tough ranged attacks. She's got the rocket launcher. She's got all sorts of ranged attacks. Uh, but you're, you're fighting her in a library, in, in, an, in an apparently indestructible library, um, mm-hmm. with plenty of cover. This is one of those things where, you know, she's shooting rockets at you. you know, a bookshelf or a column in the library ought not be able to hold up against a rocket, uh-huh. but they do. <laughs> they provide well. cover for you. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like bookshelves. A bookshelf will not be able to withstand, you know, a rocket launcher. But it does. <laughs> it gives you cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's all sorts of cover from ladies' ranged attacks because mm-hmm. these columns and these bookshelves and things. Because you're in a library. Once you win in the library, <laughs> Dante leans in close to Lady and promises mm-hmm. to take care of Arkham. Very intimate scene. Aww. And then Lady asks Dante, why do you care so much? And Dante's like, it's my family matter, too. Because it was my father who sealed away the demon world. Initially, I didn't care. But you, lady, helped me see what was important. How did she help him see what was important? Every time you've met, she shot you, or shot at you, or shot a rocket at you, or tried to kill you? So, you see, actually, she did it because she knew he'd understand. That, uh, the, language, the language of fighting, the language of love. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to attack this. I'm going to consistently attack this dude for no reason, because that's my way of saying, Dante, perspective. Remember what's important. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but somehow he credits her with helping him see what's important. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I'm awfully confused here in the library. <laughs> but in the in the next cutscene, we see Arkham preparing to use the amulet. To, like Arkham has made his way into the demon world at this point. He's found the Force Edge, which is the dormant sword of Sparta, right? Uh-huh. And so he's putting the two halves of the amulet together, and he's surrounded by all this glowy purple energy, and he's apparently preparing to awaken the sword and assume the powers of Sparta. Mm-hmm. So then we cut back to the game, and after some more progression, we come to this sort of really impressive-looking circular chamber, where we engage a ball- where basically Dante fights his own shadow. Okay. Um, we engage in a fight with a shadowy doppelganger of Dante. I think it's really cool to hurt it. You have to strike these like spheres in the arena, which will produce rays of light that will stun the boss and make it vulnerable. Uh, so it's like you know a shadow recoiling at the light, you know. Mm-hmm. It is the fight's not in the library, but we, I just want to say library again. <laughs> <laughs> so th- th- this fight that does not occur in the library, <laughs> but in a very impressive cylindrical arena. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the fight, you know Dante's basically lost his shadow, but after the fight, the shadow returns to him. Uh-huh. So that's kind of cool. Next cut, te- next cut scene. Dante finally reaches the high central platform where Arkham was, and from which he ascended into the sky. Then mm-hmm. Dante somehow ascends after him into the demon world. Right. And so, in the next cut scene, Arkham is actually wielding the sword of Sparta again, enveloped in this eerie purple light. He then transforms into a demonic figure that very much looks like Sparta's devil trigger form. And so, at this point, we see that Arkham has indeed assumed the powers of Sparta. Uh huh. Dun dun dun. And it did not occur in the library. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of the library, in the next cutscene, Lady is still in the library. (laughs) Um, And Virgil enters the library and also, and also in the library, passes Lady. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so, so Lady's in the library, Virgil enters the library, and he just sort of walks past Lady and doesn't really acknowledge her. And she sees him walk past, and she's like, oh, it's Virgil. Mm-hmm. And then next cutscene, which is back outside the library. <laughs> After we navigate one last series of challenges, Dante finally confronts Sparta slash Arkham in the demon world. And Arkham says that the power of Sparta is overflowing in him. At which point he transforms into this huge, grotesque, purple, demonic ball of jello. <laughs> it's like, what's happening? And then I think it, the game is trying to tell us that the power of Sparta was too much for him to control, essentially. So it's, he's transforming now, and it, it's getting beyond him. And so you fight Demon Arkham, and once you deplete Demon Arkham's health bar to a certain point, Virgil shows up and attacks Arkham. Mm-hmm. Then Virgil just states outright, basically, that Basically, that the power of Sparta is too much for Arkham to handle. Uh, so that's why he's transforming and, and whatnot. Um, it's like, you know, if you took a mouse and put it in a lion's body, it, would the mouse know what to do? <laughs> that's so deep. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the same thing here. Arkham is just a human. Mm-hmm. And so you give him the godlike powers of Sparta, he's not going to be able to, to handle it. You know? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. going to be too much for him. Yeah. You know, it's like trying to supercharge a double-A battery to power a Prius. You know, it's just too much. The battery would explode. <laughs> you know, you need Prius batteries to power a Prius. <laughs> you, try to, you try to cram that much juice inside a double-A battery, it's going to go boom. <laughs> too much power, man. Mm-hmm. Too much power. Yeah. So basically, you know, it was too much power for Arkham. His circuits were getting overloaded, as it were. So that's why he's spinning out of control and transforming into this big purple ball of demon jello. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the two brothers fighting together now make very short work, short but stylish work, of uh, you know Demon Arkham. Mm-hmm. And so and then each brother reclaims his half of the amulet, and then the two drop into some sort of waterfall gully somewhere in the Demon World. Um, and so in the next cutscene, we see Arkham fall back onto the platform from which he ascended up into the Demon World, and... Well, you know what? Lady is there waiting for. Uh, and she's not quite so sympathetic as she was, you know, before. Yeah. <laughs> Arkham is, at this point, Arkham's in bad shape. He's crawling along. He's bleeding out. He's still muttering to himself, vowing to become a god, you know. And then Lady, Lady confronts him. Arkham tries to justify killing her mother. He's like, I was trying to become a god, and I sacrificed one miserable person oh, to that end. damn, don't say that, bro. <laughs> That's exactly what he says. He's like, I was trying to become a god, and to that end, I sacrificed one miserable person. Is that so wrong? <laughs> You're telling her this. Yeah. And then after saying that, he asks for ladies' help. <laughs> I'll try to borrow some money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I I killed your mother, and I'm not sorry about it. But can you lend me a couple hundred bucks? <laughs> you know, it's like holy cow. Um, he he keeps and it, all the while he, he he keeps calling her Mary. Lady's actual name is Mary. Okay. Um, to which Lady replies, "Mary died a long time ago. My name is Lady." Mm-hmm. So she adopts the name that Dante gave her. Now, I don't think Dante meant to name her lady. He just like, called her lady. <laughs> like she, she, she wouldn't reveal her name mm-hmm. to him. Like he asked her name. She's like, I have no name. He's like, whatever, lady. <laughs> <laughs> and so lady is the name she sort of adopts for yeah, herself. Yeah, well, like, you know Mary how died. like Lady Gaga is Lady Gaga. So Lady Gaga, yep. 
Lady Gaga's a big fan of Bayonetta, as I. Oh, really? Oh, to. snap. Every one time Lady Gaga tweeted at like four in the morning, I'm so tired, but I'm playing Bayonetta and I'm fighting this dragon and I need help. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, Lady Gaga was tweeting about how she was struggling with this dragon in Bayonetta. Aww. I think it was Bayonetta too she was hmm. playing. So yeah, that, 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 that's pretty neat. So Lady Gaga may not be a hardcore gamer, but she's, she's a bit of a gamer. <laughs> oh, let, let me look at my notes to see if... Uh, okay, so the, the Sparta brothers have just killed Demon Arkham. Mm-hmm. And we've seen him fall to the platform, and Lady has oh killed uh, killed Arkham after adopting the name Lady mm-hmm. for herself. Okay, cool. So now Arkham is dead. We don't yeah. see him again. It's like she says, "My name is Lady," and then she shoots him repeatedly. She empties the clip in him, basically. <laughs> oh my goodness! See, now all through the game, you know Dante has guns too that he uses, and you never run out of mm-hmm. ammunition ever. I don't know why, but you just in all the games, you none of your firearms ever run out of ammunition. Um, but in this particular Excuse me, in this particular scene, Lady empties the clip in him and the guns run out of ammunition. I guess that's for a dramatic effect. Yeah. So meanwhile, the brothers Sparta have landed in some sort of gully leading up to a waterfall in the demon world. And they've landed alongside the sword of Sparta. Virgil takes that sword and then demands Dante's half of the amulet. Each brother has taken back his own half of the amulet, but but Virgil demands to have Dante's half as well. Dante refuses and goes on this big, you know, moralistic, inspirational rant about how he's going to stop Virgil because that's what his soul is telling him to do because he's a son of Sparta. We don't just have his blood. We have his soul, too. And my soul is telling me to stop you, Virgil. So you start to see Dante begin to become a man, you know, not just this, not just this cocky, brash kid that he's been for the whole game, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Dante's finally becoming a man. And so Virgil's like, well, our souls are at odds, brother. And so, guess what? Boss fight. What? Oh, snap. You know, one last time, Dante versus Virgil. This time, Virgil is using the Force Edge against you, okay. uh, which is Sparta's sword. And, of course, he has Devil Trigger and all of his other annoying moves. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and in this fight, his moveset, at least in places, becomes very similar to your own. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're fighting a stronger version of yourself in some respects. So it's a difficult fight from what I've you know seen. And once you deplete Virgil's health bar, Virgil comes close to admitting defeat. He's like, am I being defeated? Uh, and then Dante's like, come on, get up. You can do better than that. <laughs> but then Virgil points out that because the amulets have separated, the portal to the demon world is now closing. Uh-huh. So the two charge at each other one last time. You know, a lot of times in anime, you know, at the end of a fight, they don't know really, the writers don't know how to end it. So they'll have the two enemies just sort of charge each other and one will, yeah, yeah. One will strike the decisive blow. Yeah. It happens all the time in anime. I'm like, come on, guys. <laughs> Do you have to use that over and over again, the final charge? Yeah, yeah no, you're better than that. Yeah, really. It's like, you guys are better than this, but it happens all the time in anime. It's like the, this big fight and then the foes will make one final charge at each other and then one will strike the decisive blow. All the mm-hmm. time in anime. Like, Bleach, it happens like every other day. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the big, they make this big charge at each other and this time Dante lands the decisive blow. Oh. So Virgil sort of drops to his knees, clutching his half of the amulet, and he vows to stay in the demon world because this was their father's home and he tells Dante to leave. So at this point, Virgil sort of backs up and falls down the waterfall, leaving behind the Force Edge, which Dante takes as he leaves the demon world, as the portal closes. Uh Uh-huh. So at this point, we're left to wonder what happened to Virgil. And we'll find out shortly. Um, And in the next cutscene, Dante and Lady meet 
Dante gives her back. Because I forgot to mention at the end of the boss fight with Lady, after the big touching scene, Lady actually gives Dante her rocket launcher mm-hmm. to use as he goes forth to stop Arkham. And so Dante gives back the rocket launcher. And Lady catches Dante shedding a little tear for Virgil. To which Dante replies, devils never cry. Oh. He's like embracing his devil, the devil part of his identity, I guess. And that's a line from Devil May Cry 2. So people who played Devil May Cry 2 will be like, oh, that's the line from Devil May Cry 2. But if devil never cry, then why devil may cry? Well, see, to Lady's reply. Uh-huh. She says that somewhere, even a devil may cry if he loses a loved one. Oh, and so that's mm-hmm, where we get I the name, see. yeah. And then, as the two were sharing this touching, sentimental moment, all of a sudden, hordes of demons show up, and Dante and Lady start fighting them, and very stylishly. I think you're actually controlling Dante as they fight them. As the credits begin to roll, and very stylish rock music plays in the background. <laughs> and Dante's like, "Oh, cool, fighting demons! This is what I live for." <laughs> You know, it's like, okay, cool. Awesome. And so we're very nearly done, actually, at this mm-hmm. point, because there's a little bit left after the credits. Okay. Um, so there's a couple of post-credit scenes. Like, there's one, one deals with what happens to Virgil. Okay. Um, Virgil's in the demon world, and he eventually finds, guess who? Um, um, um who? Mundus. Oh, my God. Yeah, Virgil stumbles across Mundus in the demon world. Oh, damn. And it, if you play through Devil May Cry 1, Mundus is the main antagonist. And usually when you see him, it's like these three luminous red orbs up in the sky, kind of arranged like a triangle. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see when Virgil comes across Mundus. So people who played through Devil May Cry 1 will know, oh, crap, that's Mundus. Yeah. And so Virgil is all cocky. He's like, well, if my father beats you, I can too. So he rushes in to fight Mundus. And now, this is important for Devil May Cry 1, because in Devil May Cry 1, there's a boss called Neo Angelo that you fight repeatedly. Uh-huh. Um, it turns out that is Virgil. So Virgil is serving Mundus oh. in Devil May Cry 1. And so that raises the inference that Virgil loses his duel with Mundus and becomes yeah. en- enslaved <laughs> to Mundus uh-huh. in the uh-huh. form of Neo Angelo. So Virgil loses against Mundus and becomes his slave. Mm-hmm. Um, but meanwhile, Lady... Because Lady's not in Devil May Cry 1 or 2, so the game has to account for this. Okay. So, Lady leaves Dante to fulfill her goal of killing all the evil demons in the world and preventing any crazy person like Arkham from trying to do what Arkham did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dante finally decides on a name for his devil hunting business, Devil May Cry. Aww. And that pretty much does it for Devil May Cry 3. Oh my god, that was very good, Nick! Oh, thank you, thank you. It was very long, I guess, but it was <laughs> It's good. Wow. Awesome. Thank you very much. I'm glad that made sense because I'm running on like three hours sleep. So I hope I'm not like babbling incoherently. (laughs) No, no, it's all cool. It's especially impressive on how little sleep you've had. (laughs) I mean, you would know something about that. Uh, (laughs) Me never. No, I always get my nine to 10 hours of sleep a night. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm Richard Pilbeam. I always get my nine to 10 hours of sleep. (laughs) That's the voice you use when you make fun of Richard. No, I'm Richard Pilbeam. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. It's also a voice I used to make fun of everyone. <laughs> it's a good make. It's a good fun poking voice. Yeah, yeah. Ah, we love you, Richard. By the way, there was a great podcast last night on great live podcast last night on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I don't know how you got the fishing Hamlet background, but that was that was pretty cool. Oh, I got it on my PlayStation in oh, the so- game Bloodborne. 
Oh, so, so you just had Bloodborne up and with the fishing hammock there as the backdrop? Yeah, yeah, I just had my character down and I uh, turned the camera so you can't see the character. <laughs> oh, cool! And that's, yeah. that's very clever. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> oh, cool. I, she, I, I thought you must have found some like stock footage of it, but that was actually in-game footage. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Nick, so tell us, where can we find you on social media? Oh, yes. Um, my gaming handle is CinderThief, C-Y-N-D-E-R space Thief. Um, <laughs> and under that name, we're on Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch. Mm-hmm. Um, of those, I've been spending... <laughs> lately, I've been spending the most time on Twitch. Um, we just passed 300 followers on Twitch not too long Yay! ago. So that's Good cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's not like massive, but it's like you know significant. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. Considering I've haven't been, I've only been streaming seriously on Twitch since like December. So mm-hmm. that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. Yeah. So we've been spending most of the time on Twitch, but we have the YouTube channel and the Twitter channel. I don't do really do anything on Facebook. Um, uh-huh. So you have Twitter and Discord and YouTube and Twitch are enough to keep up with. <laughs> yeah, and of course your Discord server is quite awesome. Oh, thank you. See, I've, I've thought about making my own Discord server, but see, I have this condition where I'm really lazy <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and really busy. So it's like, yeah, yeah. You would know something about that. You oversee the Discord and do all the YouTube stuff. I don't know how you do it. It's impressive. But... Well, actually, the trick is Sin has like triplets, mm-hmm. and each one of us does one part of the thing. So one of us does the YouTube channel, one of us streams, the other one oversees the social media, but people just don't know. Also, like Naruto, you've got the shadow clone jutsu where you can make copies of yourself to do stuff. Yeah, there we go. That's cool. (laughs) Brilliant strategy. (laughs) But yeah, no, see, we're on YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch under the handle CinderThief, and if anyone wants to come by and holler at some point, I'd love to see you. Awesome streams. I love them. Well, thank you. Um, But yeah, that's Devil May Cry 3. Maybe not so much in a nutshell, but that's Devil May Cry 3. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, so I guess we'll see you again for some more Devil May Cry, as well as Horizon lore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which means, yeah, I'm going to have to play through the game again before we do it, because the game explains the lore really well, so the best way to understand the lore is just play through the game. Yeah, Yeah, you made me, like, want to replay 2 now, so... Thank you all. If you ever decide to stream it at some point, I'll certainly stop by. Oh, also, thanks. Heck yeah. And thanks for uh, supporting my uh, snack habit addiction. <laughs> well, hey, you know, we, we have to make our regular offerings to the snack covenant or they'll be fire and pistol.